Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tonya, the producer with our host, Dean Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Welcome to Art Grind. We are here with Patrick McGinnis, a writer and entrepreneur and the creator of the word FOMO. So we actually interviewed Patrick about a year ago and the interview was fantastic. And we wanted to wait until May when he was releasing a book about FOMO. And by May, obviously the world was in an entirely different state. His book came out, but our podcast didn't. So here we are back again. Patrick, thank you for being here. What is releasing a book during lockdown like? Wow. It was, um, it was a process of recognizing the reality of the situation. I was in complete denial. I was in March, right as things started to shut down, it was when I was starting to do outreach and our publicist at the publisher was doing outreach to media outlets. And um, I had a very big media plan. We, we, you know, we were talking about doing like the late night shows, the Today Show. These were the things that they thought we would get. And, and then I also have good contacts from my previous book. And so we had a, a really solid plan for getting the word out. In March, I just realized that nobody was responding to anything that I was sending out. It was incredible. And it was just, it sort of felt like pointless. And then I remember thinking, well, that's fine because we're going to go under lockdown and that'll take three weeks and then we'll be out by mid-April and everything will be fine. And so I was like, should I cancel my book party? It's on May 5th in New York City. Like, you know, what should I do? And so I was, well, I'll just decide that later on. Well, fast forward into April and I obviously knew there would be no book party, but there was a period of time in April where things sort of late April, where the weather was getting nicer and things warmed up and, and, um, and people started to want to hear other stories. And so I got some decent press and started to get out there and I was getting responses to my emails. It's sort of like people were over the initial shock of, of, of the quarantine and, and the pandemic and were, were open-minded about maybe talking about, about FOMO. And I think also people realized that FOMO had gone away when they locked themselves in their homes. They thought, well, FOMO is no longer a phenomenon. And then a month later, they were like, no, it is because I feel like I'm missing out on the entire life I should be living right now. And so I actually had pretty good traction. And then George Floyd was killed and the Black Lives Matter conversation happened. And of course, there was no there was no reason to be discussing my book at that point or promoting it. I mean, it was much more important, obviously, to have conversations about racial equity. And so I just stopped doing anything. I mean, I was at that point, I sort of said, like, this is just it's better for me to just step away, let people focus on what we need to do as a country and maybe come back to this later. And so I talked to my publisher and we decided I, you know, I recorded the audiobook a couple of weeks ago. We're going to come out kind of refresh and relaunch the book in, in, in the winter. Um, and we'll see what the world looks like then. But what is so, you know, now we have the election coming up, which is also, there's just no space. And so I guess I'm not complaining at all because I have to say, first of all, I've been healthiest as my family. Um, you know, I, I've 
that felt pretty resilient during this time. And um, books live on for years. And many people have lost career opportunities and performers have not been able to perform. I mean, there's really, I have nothing to complain about. That, that, that's clear. But I will say just the experience of living through this, this time when um, no matter what you did, there was just no ability to get people to be interested in what you were doing. It was very, it was a great lesson in life about, I don't know about just like the fact that you need to be there. You just don't know what's going to come at you. And, and in fact, so many friends of mine who had books coming out had the same experience, you know, I mean, it was just, it's shocking to me that it's just everybody who was doing something new or creative this year faced the same problem. And for the record, it's just because we're all healthy, right? And no one died. It doesn't mean that you can't complain. I mean, you, you spent years of your life probably writing a book about FOMO that was scheduled to come out during the one moment between frantically looking at COVID statistics and the BLM protests. No one was interested in anything else. You can complain, Patrick. It's okay. You, like, you know what I think it is? You know what I think maybe why I'm so sanguine? Because it's not like just, I'm a really competitive, ambitious person. So it's not like I'm just like Zen like that. And I like meditated about it. Um, although I do, I think what it was, was in early on in the days of COVID, everything I was doing professionally disappeared. I mean, I do speaking, I do, um, I was working on a venture capital fund, raising a fund. I do a lot of consulting work internationally. And basically I remember these three days, it was like March, like fifth to seventh, whatever it was, every single thing got canceled or postponed. And I actually saw all my revenue dry up and I was just totally in shock and upset and it was very stressful. And over time, most of those things have come back and I've had a perfectly fine year. And so I, I think maybe because I had that very scary moment and it ended up being okay, I just sort of feel grateful that things are going as well as they are. With the book, I was shocked. Like if you had told me a year ago this was going to happen, I would have thought I was going to be super devastated. I don't know. I was able to kind of roll through it in a way that I wouldn't have predicted. So I'm not sure why that is yet. I haven't figured that out yet. You know, it's funny, it's that weekend that you were talking about, that was um, one of my last times in New York. I was there for the art fairs and a bunch of photo shoots, and I had two interviews. One of them was at the Art Students League, and the day before I was supposed to go into that one, actually, Marshall said, the league's shutting down tomorrow. So I got the other gig. I didn't get that one. I remember thinking that this was an anomaly. There's no way that the whole world was going to follow suit. And then, you know, a week later, that trip to New York, where I was sleeping on a different couch every night and going through like five different institutions for work each day and spending all my time on public transport that trip wouldn't have been possible so I was kind of glad I got my last my last New York hurrah and it was a lot of fun but like three days after I came back everything started to, you know Massachusetts shut down a week later it was New York but so hopefully um I don't know if we're through the other side of the corona apocalypse as far as you're concerned talk about what's happening with your book right now because there's going to be a relaunch and an audiobook and all these exciting things so. yeah so what was cool about it in a way was I still did my big what was this is interesting actually and for this is I think highly relevant to artists what I'm about to say, because I'm writing as a type of art. And my brother's a musician, my sister's a dancer, my sister-in-law is a dancer. So all of us watched as our like 
kind of thing. Cause people, a lot of my friends are like, well, people will still read books during now. I, I mean, they're, they're reading books. People are reading two types of books right now. They're reading books about pandemics or they're reading books about racial equity. They're not reading books about productivity and decision-making. I can tell you that. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's okay. Like that's what needs to happen. One thing that was a great thing is that like my book party, had I done it in New York, I would have had 150 people there. It would have been great. I did an online book party. I had 700 people. I ended up doing huge, huge, huge online events. Like I remember like my last book, when it came out, I would do like a speech to 20 people and a speech to 14 people and a speech to nine people and a speech to 53 people. Every one of my online events, and I partnered with a bunch of people, had hundreds of people there. So what I learned through that experience is that like, even though I enjoy in-person events more, like I could do multiple events a day all over the world. Like I had one day I did an event in Jordan and then I did one in London and, and eventually I ended up, they weren't just promotion. I got hired to do zoom talk. I was just amazed at how effective that was. And I would have never thought of it before. So that was really, really cool. And I've, so I've been doing a lot of speaking, which has been fantastic. Um, I just recorded my audio book and that was kind of fun because when I did my first book uh, that came out four years ago, I wasn't even asked to do my audiobook. And now I had to audition, actually. Um, I had to go into the studio and like they put you in the booth, right? So it's, it's isolated. So it's safe. I had to, um, to audition and I, they chose me, thankfully. And then I recorded it over a course of three days, which was very intense. But the audiobook comes out at the end of this year. And so we're really going to focus on assuming that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen next week, but assuming the world is semi not crazy, um, this will be a great opportunity to go back out and tell the story. And then I'm also relaunching my podcast, FOMO Sapiens at the end of the month. And much like you, it's kind of funny. I had an interview I did with a guy called Jay Shetty, who is a huge influencer. He may be one of the most watched people on the planet online he and I recorded in early March, like right before everything got crazy and his book was delayed. And so I delayed the, the podcast. And so now it's finally coming out. And so that'll be kind of fun. It's a great episode. Well, welcome back, Patrick. I'm really hoping that in three more weeks, society won't shut back down again, or else it'll be a really long, dark night of the soul. But congratulations on everything, belatedly. So I read your book. Your book is fantastic. I was probably one of those few people interested in productivity and decision-making because there's only so many pandemic books that you can read. I mean, it sounds like you've had a pretty intense last seven or eight months. Is there anything that you came out the other side with that you would kind of like to share before we start in on, on the actual podcast? Yeah, I would say, whew, I mean, what didn't we learn, right? It's, I, I have this, this awesome, awesome sweatshirt that I got a friend of mine's company. It's called Rowing Blazers is the company. And um, you can see it on my, on my Instagram, Patrick J. McGinnis. I, I wear it on there. It says quarantine university. <laughs> which is just and people I wear it around New York City and like people stop and say I love your sweatshirt because one thing that's happened during this period is like New Yorkers are just so great right now people are so awesome people are so friendly and supportive it's awesome like being a New Yorker right now is fantastic it always was but it's it's great but I always and then I always am like yeah like so when they say I love your sweatshirt I'm like well you know I went to Harvard but the, the real place I learned everything in life is quarantine university which is like, I think all of us went to, to, to school there and we learned a lot more than we did at our respective educational institutions. So that, that's kind of the way I think about it. But I think for me, the thing that I learned is 
that this is a very tough experience. Being resilient is really hard. And many of you have probably read Man's Search for Meaning, which is Viktor Frankl's book about living through the Holocaust and about how we can deal with adversity. It's a book that I had never read until the pandemic. And then a friend told me about it. And it's kind of, it's been a popular pandemic read. His book is doing well. Um, Good job. So everybody should read it. It's a really wonderful book and it's not very long, but what I, what I think that book says that I think was what I learned is that, um, and I think all of us can relate to is really when we are, when we're faced with adversity, you know, there are really three things that we can find meaning in to get through them. One is love. One is meaning of our work. Third one is seeing meaning in, in the in the struggle, seeing meaning in the in the thing that we're trying to overcome. And so I tried through this period to love, you know, in the relationships of all the people in my life and appreciating them. Number two is really thinking deeply about why I do what I do and you know what what am I what, like am I giving value to the world and and seeing the value and trying to find that value and, and focus on it. And the third is just like recognizing that this is quarantine university, we can learn, we can come out better on the other side. And so I've I actually really sustained me through the whole thing. And so I, I feel I've been shocked. It was far less. I don't know. I've done far better sort of just in general mood than I would have ever expected I could do, but that's what I've learned. Where can people find your book? Well, Everywhere, everywhere. It's all the, over the place. I'm telling you, so you know what? I mean, that's a whole other topic because a lot of bookstores are closed or a lot of books have been delayed or a lot of the people who were the buyers at the bookstores got laid off and furloughed. And so like that is just, I, I don't even know. But I'll tell you something, you know, I know a lot of people don't like Amazon for different reasons, but Amazon always has my book. And so thank you, Amazon. Barnesandnoble.com also will have it. You know, there's a lot of places online. There's obviously an ebook. It's a very relevant read for right now because it's about choosing what matters to you. And I think we all learned this year that we don't have time to waste on the silly stuff. So definitely I encourage people to check out the book. Thank you so much, Patrick, both for the initial interview back when uh, in the old normal and for being with us here on Zoom in the new normal. Well, you, you know, it's cool too, for everybody who's listening. I'm curious, maybe you guys will tell us what you think and give us some feedback, but like, do we sound like... Like we're like different people than we were when you hear the first episode, you know, when you hear the the original episode. I'm curious what people think. Mm -hmm. So the disconnection between the act of creation and the value that it is, it's important to recognize. In kind of life you want to live and you don't want to live a life where you go work in a hedge fund all day long and, you know, work 18 hour days. You you want to live a life, you want to live a life where you talk to a bunch of interesting people and you travel a lot. I'm assuming you're pretty happy with the life you're living right now. How did you make that? Like, yes, that I had yeah. to, it was forging the fire of the 2008 financial crisis and like losing everything. That's, so uh, that's like a theme throughout this pod. You're not, you're not the only one, except we were all losing a lot less money. Marshall makes introduction. Yes. All right. We're ready to go. Uh, hello. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm your host, Marshall Jones. I'm here with Dina Brodsky. Uh, Say making, hello. Making a guest appearance. Yeah, guest appearance. <laughs> Tung Yang. Also hello. guest appearance. And no, our, yeah. And our guest, Patrick McGinnis. Patrick, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you for having me. So Patrick is probably the most famous person we've had on the podcast <laughs> and also <laughs> and also the only one who's not immediately either a, a painter or a gallery director. So Patrick, amongst his other achievements, has created the word FOMO. He made it up. So for all of you who don't know, the fear of missing out. And you're, so you're famous for a lot of things, but you kind of became famous for that too. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. How, how do you come up with a word? I don't know the origin of that. How did that or the... Uh, you know. So I've always been making up words since I was a kid, actually. I've just always been creative that way with language. And I was like writing and, and as a kid. And when I was a graduate student at Harvard Business School, I noticed this interesting phenomenon, which is that this was actually pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram and LinkedIn. It was 2003, 2002 okay. and three. I get there and everybody is running around like mad trying to do everything at all times because you're in this very choice rich environment you know you're in the harvard system and also mm -hmm. you have classes and lectures and and you have most people have worked so they have a little bit of money saved so they can travel so anyway i had lots of options and i would literally get up at seven in the morning and be running around until midnight every day and then the weekend like just party 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 and travel and all that sort of stuff and i just realized what a contrast that was from my life growing up in the state of maine which was very simple or you know working in new york i mean i was in new york before but i was just at the office all the time and so it, i basically tried to do everything to, to take advantage of these opportunities my friends started making fun of me like man you like you're trying to be everything do all things all the time and i said yeah i have this fear of missing out and i started calling mm. it that and then i shortened it to fomo because fear of missing out is a bit of a mouthful <laughs> And I wrote a, an article in our school newspaper all about this, this thing, FOMO. And then it became very popular among my classmates and my friends. And then I graduated and went off and lived my life. And then 10 years later, a reporter from Boston Magazine called me and said I'm, he was writing an article about the history of FOMO. He had traced it back to me. And I said, yes, that's true. Why do you care? And he said, well, it's in the dictionary now. And so that was the, wow. the it was quite, it was quite shocking. And I have, you know, I, I always inventing new words. I invented, I like to say my new word is McGincident. It's an incident that starts by, you know, from Patrick McGinnis creates an incident, <laughs> a McGincident. So, but that'll never get popular because it's so specific. Yeah, there's <laughs> one I mean, on the other it hand. It kind of depends on how many incidents you create. Po popular popular in Ireland, right? The fact that that there. word made it into the dictionary is a huge deal because uh, I found out recently that uh, the dictionary only allows a certain amount of words to be in it. So they so had to like, a, kick some word out. They in had order to, to kick make room a for lot promo. of words <laughs> out. And so. You should be very you happy. Displace someone. Yeah. You displace someone. I am happy. Well, so when you, I found so out, you, I freaked you, out. So you, so you basically displace sesquipedalianism. <laughs> which, for all of you who don't shockingly don't know that word, means someone who uses too many long words. There's the tendency to use too many long words. It's an God, ironic word. So it, no, it's a self-descriptive word. So if you <laughs> yeah, use the right. word sesquipedalian in a sentence, you are sesquipedalian. I also believe it's rat relatively automatopoetic. So, yes. So, okay. so, so, so actually before, you know, like, so, so right now here, here we see, so right now Patrick has a podcast and a new book coming out when, like right uh, now? May, no, May of 2020. Yeah. Nice. All right. May, uh, and it's your second book. My second book. Yep. Um, so, um, and, uh, my guess is eventually you're going to like end up in politics. So, uh, Never. I, well, I want to be ambassador to Argentina. But, I'm not running for anything. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So Wired, if you're listening, Wired, Donald Trump, yeah, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump is totally listening to our grind. He, he would, he's one of our biggest fans. If you're listening, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, any of you, Mike Bloomberg, I'm available. <laughs> and that's that's all we see. Our you know that's our niche audience. I would like yeah. it if Andrew Yang listened. <laughs> so he was on my podcast actually. 
Are you serious? Yeah, he was on. He was my season two premiere. And no he, he was great. Way. Uh, so as as you can tell, I actually uh, really like Patrick, Andrew Yang. Yeah, Patrick has a much bigger, more successful podcast than our grind. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before before you became the Patrick McGinnis who causes McGincidents, <laughs> how did you grow up? Like you were talking about Maine a little bit. Tell us about yourself before the FOMO. So I grew up in a small town in Maine called Sanford, hour and a half north of Boston. But Boston was like the big scary place. Where like I've heard stories of people from my hometown that go to Boston and they'll, you know, it's like four in the afternoon, they're walking down the street and they get lost and they freak out and like call their children crying. <laughs> you know, it's just, and I love Maine, by the way, but it's just, you know, it's far, it's far away for us. And, and we're, we're like, you know, small town people and it's very, uh, it was a great place to grow up. And my parents were very indulgent of any of our interests. So, for example, if we were interested in, I, I was interested in Chernobyl when I was a kid. Um, Chernobyl? Chernobyl, like mm-hmm. the power plant. Uh-huh. And my dad helped was me build before, like a model of it. Before, after. Before or after a blue <laughs> Definitely. At, I mean, well, I mean, I actually went to Chernobyl and checked it out. And it was, we can talk about that another day. But I was really interested in nuclear power and all that sort of stuff. So my dad would like help me make you know, my science project, I probably, probably that was against the rules, but anyway, or my mom, I, one time I, we had to make like a, I mean, a pillow. Was there any nuclear fusion what did, uh, what in, in your science project? Chernobyl <laughs> model was. look like? Was it um, like foam yeah, core? My dad actually helped machine. me make the core with like these wood dowels. Uh, oh, my dad's like, extro- my, I'll show you guys. Like my father creates these models out of balsa. He's made the Eiffel Tower. Like my dad is a, a builder. He's a guy who like can make anything. He's incredibly good spatially. Mm-hmm. Um, makes models of things just like without even sort of a blueprint. He's really yeah. talented. Wow, cool. Where's, uh, where's my dad was actually right next to Chernobyl in a blue. That's uh, where you grew up. You yeah, were... like, I mean, I'm, I, I'm in the biggest city downwind from Chernobyl, so I, I, I am actually a direct side effect of your <laughs> That is um How old were you when Chernobyl? Uh, six, I think. When Chernobyl McGinnis. When Chernobyl was a McGinnis. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> yeah, or was I was in, uh, yeah, so it was 80, was it 86? Yeah, 86. 86. Uh, and I, yeah, it was like five or six. So, uh, um, do, but, do you have like friends with health things popping up? I mean, up? a That's lot like... of, I, I mean, Belarus, yeah, like the rate of cancer is through the roof. And um, so we, we actually got a little bit less radiation than everyone else because my father was an x-ray engineer. So he was fixing, like he was fixing an X-ray machine on a military base, like right next to Chernobyl when it happened. And I think they thought it was their X-ray, you know, they thought it was their X-ray machine when all the Geiger counters started, you know, going off. And they're like, oh shit, you know, like must be contained. And but I mean, they knew there was a nuclear reactor. They figured out what happened. My dad caught, found a way to call my mom. And because they were in a lead-lined room, they actually didn't get, you know, the massive dose of radiation that everyone else got. Wow. And because he found a way to call my mom, she took me and my sister out of school. So we didn't get the heavy dose of radioactive rain Good that everyone else there. got. Wow. So uh, that was a tangent. Let's go back but to your your, story that let's go back to uh your 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 chernobyl oh. <laughs> so anyway i mean these are these are just some evocative ideas my brother and i were musicians my brother actually is now a professional music you, musician you, uh, what did you play i played piano and trombone uh, uh. Did, did you and your brother ever have i mean was the big mcginnis band a thing we actually used to play um an annual we the, uh, my community has a, a center for children with developmental challenges and they every year have a telethon, and we used to play the telethon. My brother, so we also great. played Take Five together when, when he was in Dave his Brubeck. Fifth grade. Yeah, I played, I was probably in fifth grade. He was in eighth grade. 
And we have video. It's actually really adorable. That's awesome. Go ahead. And so my brother and I played together. And then um, I was, you know, super involved in music. And I was pretty academic. Um, and my parents just encouraged us to do whatever we wanted. So my brother ended up going off to music school in the conservatory at Eastman. And now is a jazz musician here in New York City and does really amazing work. And what does he play? Saxophone. Saxophone. Clarinet. Cool. And um, I, seeing him in his like the what the commitment that it took was a wake-up call for me that i was always the kind of person who wanted to do i wanted to be broad rather than deep on stuff like i'm Mm. much more of a horizontal person he's very vertical Mm. and so i just didn't have the patience to practice you know i mean you guys are painters the amount of expertise that goes into every stroke and studying you have to be willing to put in that time kind of alone mm-hmm. whereas i'm much more extrovert social animal so i ended up going off to um to college to study international affairs because i'd never left america and all i wanted to do was travel the world and so i ended up going out to georgetown and 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 studying in the school foreign service i was like that one guy you have like the kid next to you is like my dad was the ambassador to ghana and then you're, you you right. got me i was like one time i walked into canada by accident <laughs> But you must have been like extremely smart to sort of have a rural background in up I, I mean, in Georgetown kind of, Harbor. I don't know. I think we kind of assume that a rural background would mean not educated. It sounds like you actually came from a lot of either ambition or imagination or like whatever, however your parents raised you. Yes. Um, I mean, we had a perfectly, a, you know, our school system is fun. It was perfectly good, good teachers. I mean, I think it's one of those things like if you go to private school and your parents pay for you to go to Phillips Exeter, right? That's you're going to, yeah. I mean, even if you're very mediocre, they're just going to force you to be really good. Whereas for people who go to maybe, you know, a, a public school in, in Maine or Wyoming or whatever, it's really up to you. But if you want to do right. the work, the teachers will be very supportive of my experience. Man, I saw, I saw that gap so huge because when I was in, uh, art school here, I was doing nanny work and you would go to these really elite private schools here and just see how that's a track that Manhattan kids have access to. That's a little different from the rest of the country. Totally. Although I will say like my freshman, I remember going freshman year to Georgetown, all these classmates of mine, there was, it was probably 50% public school, 50% private school. And it was all of these elite private schools. And the kids who gone to the private schools were so polished but they also weren't hungry because they mm. worked so hard in high school that they were all fatigued and they just wanted to like have fun. Mm. And they were way more savvy, so they knew how to get a fake ID. And so some of those kids did very well, obviously, and all of them did fine. But I was just like, I, st- I used to read the chapters that weren't assigned in the books just in case. Like I was so hungry. They say that grit is like the number one factor for success anyway, just sort of. Background regardless, just are you willing to grab something and keep pushing it? I think that's true. I would also say, though, that you could, that it depends on how you define success because you'll have these people who, yes, they achieve their goals, but then because, because they're so singular and focused and so like unrelenting, they're unhappy sort of mm-hmm, in the rest of their yeah. life. So it's like that great resilience, balance, all those things together. If you can string them together, it's like, you know, and learn as you go along, you're probably better positioned. Mm-hmm. I think if you fall in love with the, just the hustle part, like it's going to kill you. Oh, the hustle porn as they call it, right? Really? So much. Dude, what you love? We work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, 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 uh, 
Yeah, I've been know. adding year for a few months. What's hustle porn? Hustle porn. Oh man, I just actually did a podcast on this, so I'm, it's very fresh in my mind. And they wanted, by the way, like that we were gonna use, we were gonna put porn in the title of my podcast. But I was like, you know, Harvard Business Review wouldn't appreciate that, so we're gonna. <laughs> take- uh, but we could probably uh, call yours FOMO porn because you know we don't have a big backer, <laughs> <laughs> and, well, no, and no one would tell us not to do it. <laughs> as I always tell people, hustle porn or entrepreneurship porn, which is very different than porn entrepreneurship, by the way. Oh, okay. wait, wait, do it tell. is. Yeah, totally. But, <laughs> porn entrepreneurship is just you just need a camera at your home. Um, <laughs> Entrepreneurship porn is, is the, the story, the narrative that's sold that like if you just work really hard, like you'll be the next Zuckerberg. Like all you mm. need to do is just quit your job and like just run off and start that company and you know, who cares? Follow like they'll, your dreams. they'll tell you you're wrong, but like you know you're right and like just you know, and that is a it's a path towards a lot of pain. It's a lie. Okay. And yeah. that is hustle porn. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, so there's like an art version of that that we kind of complain about probably on this That's podcast. That's what we were just talking and, about. And, and, and off this podcast where we were all told like ability to survive in the art world. You were talking about the 2008 financial crisis, which we should get at some point, but it changed the art world entirely, right? And before that, they told you to follow a certain track, right? You finish grad school, you get a, ga- you know, you start going to openings, you network, you get a gallery and the gallery takes care and you work really, really hard and the gallery takes care of you and you meet all the right people and then around 2008 2009 all of that just stopped working so people kept telling you to do that because that was how they used to do it you know and there was no new model and everyone kind of panicked and didn't make any money and worked a lot of odd side side gigs uh but there was like the art version of art career porn yeah yeah Yeah. right now the uh uh, art patrick we need a word for it for artists yeah (laughs) come up with a good one I was just t- talking to Marshall about this before. The uh, One of the artists posted on Facebook, she's doing a show and saying that her student loan alone every month is around 1700 Wow. Just her student loan. Like, that's, that's a insane. huge nut. That's on, yeah. Especially rent. when you're trying to sell paintings to oh, yeah. make that up monthly. Yeah, exactly. With rent in New York City and yeah. God knows what else you got to pay for. Yep. So what type of student were you? Would you consider yourself a a super hustler were you social were you a bit of it all like you were saying it sounds like you were a butterfly it sounds like you were like kind of butterflying around from one later well at, at georgetown i was i st- my first year my second year first two years i was a very competitive a little bit of the old um sharp elbows mm. like you know and it was the culture was like that if you missed class like nobody would give you their notes kind of thing it was very right. intense right. and i used to go to a party on saturday night i'd have like two beers and then head to the library and study yeah. i had a little rule called the three-day rule <laughs> i'm really digging in the recesses three-day rule meant before any exam any exam at all you need to be ready to actually teach the subject yourself three days before so i'd go into a like a into like a uh, a classroom on the weekend that was empty and I would fake teach the class on uh, the subject uh, and if I couldn't wow. do that then I was not ready for the exam um, so Whoa, this, is, wow. this is why Patrick is now very successful and uh, we're not because, I was uh, crazy <laughs> what? so you were imagining these people sitting down like uh, yeah I'd be like I'd be like well great question Francois you're um, right you know <laughs> let's talk about the Laffer curve <laughs> 
Uh, That's why you are my favorite student. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know how I took exams? Uh, I think by, by eating my friend's Adderall the night before and staying up all night trying to memorize a textbook. Uh, um, no, I, I, have, I, I don't think I've ever studied for an exam three days before the exam, exam happened. At the, but I was also not a good student and did not end up an entrepreneur or writing books or any of that. Well, I changed because I spent my junior year in Argentina and I'd never been out of the country and I had the scholarship that I wanted to go there. And that was what I realized there was like, I actually got terrible grades, but it didn't matter. It just, they just transferred the credit and I basically did nothing for months and had like the best time in my life. And so when I came back, I was able to reestablish like mm. a much better balance because, you know, mm. it wasn't sustainable. What Wait, I was doing. So let's, mm. let's, let's actually get into that a little bit. So yeah. what were you doing in Argentina? You were not learning how to teach classes so you could take three days before every exam. Uh, no. what, what was it was the best time of your life? What was it? It was super fun. So I got there. I didn't speak very good Spanish, but I was at a base. And then I so I was I basically like got there. I ended up living with these Catalans mm. who were amazing. We all had this apartment together and I studied, but I, you know, I went to school, but I did very little work. We were extraordinarily social. The scholarship I had gave me like more money than I ever had in my entire life. You know, I went from being like a student who was eating ramen to like all of a sudden, like have, feeling like quite Make it rain. Um, and uh, I got this girlfriend named Luciana who basically like manipulated me and made me cry but also taught me Spanish um, and best then, teacher yeah it was great hi Luciana we're, we're Facebook friends now she's great um, she lives in like a, a, a like a park on the border of Paraguay doing like ecology work hmm, nice. um, no it's good and then um I spent my my semester in between like I had a break in the in the summertime and I traveled from Arge from Bogota, uh, Colombia to Buenos Aires principally by bus mm. and had this incredible experience and like really got my Spanish going and then it was just like a very um, it was kind of like and we'll we'll talk about maybe this a little later it, it was a deprogramming time I've done this twice in my life where like literally like deprogramming all of the 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 way I saw the world and I realized like you don't have to just like grind everything out actually like you can find other ways to achieve your objectives and hmm. also i was very afraid i was i think you know new england is a place where people focus on their fears a lot of times it's like don't do that you'll get hurt hmm. and um they're risk averse hmm. whereas this trip like i went to columbia during the civil war i mean we actually like i ended up writing a, a article for the huffpo and my hbs emissions essay about how i almost got killed on a 30-hour bus ride across Colombia. Um, wow. Could, do you want to talk about it on this podcast? Or is that yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did Elaborate. you, I mean, I, 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 okay, look, you cannot, even if we don't run this, like this, this part, you cannot just say, I almost got killed in a 30-hour bus ride and just go on to like to your time at HBS. <laughs> yeah, like, so please. So basically what happened was my my roommate at the time and I, this guy, Daniel Savicente, who was this Catalan guy, we flew we flew to Bogota and um, we, we were going to Cartagena, which at the time, Nobody went to Cartagena. It's not all, all bougie like it is now. Mm. And um, like the neighborhood where people stay now, Gethsemane, which is like the place where people will, like it's cool. It's like the Brooklyn of Cartagena. At the time, like I got offered cocaine and there was no like hot water. It was rough. So mm. we bought tickets in this bus. And in Argentina, when you go on long distance bus trips, um, they have something called coche cama, which means like it means like you have like a, a bed. It turns into a bed at night. The the, the bus. Yeah, it's like seat. a full yeah, oh. it's like fold out. They bed, give you right? like, like a like sleeper bus. Yeah. yeah. Like Argentina knows how to do buses. And so mm. we were like, ooh, coche cama, like it's 38 dollars you know we, we it's a lot of money for us but we can do it because it's 20 it's going to be like 17 hours but you're saving money on a hotel room exactly like totally we did all the maths <laughs> and they're giving us food so we get on that bus we leave in the evening and then like there's a dog on the bus 
cute little dog, you know, whatever. And there's a TV and there's air conditioning. I mean, we're traveling in style in Latin America for, this was 1996. And um, about an hour after we get leave Bogota, the TV breaks. And then a couple hours later, um, like the air conditioning doesn't seem to be working. The food <laughs> isn't great. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm chill. I fall asleep. And then I wake up and da- da- Daniela is sitting next to me. We wake up at like the middle of the night. It's like, you know, like crickets. And the bus is on the side of the road. We've stopped. And it turns out something broke on the bus. And so <laughs> we oh. end up. They fix it yeah, and we wait, pull wait, back wait. on the road. But just as we're pulling back on, a car or a big truck is coming at us and we nearly collide and then end up swerving off again. Holy and shit. like we go off the road and it's like a huge conflagration and it takes a while to fix. I fall asleep. I wake up the next morning. We're in the jungle going across this place called the Magdalena Media. And basically the bus is not air conditioning. The dogs are whimpering. Um, <laughs> and the, um, and the, the bus becomes a local and stops at every village. And so we stop and get food at some horrible place. And then people start getting on and off like it's, you know, this, like the, the community bus. And this old man gets on. You're like, dude, you're on that bed. <laughs> this old, old man gets on and he's blind. Oh, no. And he proceeds to urinate in a Ziploc bag. Oh, no. And then turn to me. Ziploc bag. Yeah, it was a, it was a strong yeah, move. He turns to me and yeah. he's like, nieto, toma esto, which means take grandson, it, please yeah. take this. <laughs> And I was just like, no, soy su nieto, señor. Uh, we end up, we end up getting, it was, we end up getting to the outskirts of Barranquilla, which was on the way to Cartagena. Yeah. And um, there's a there's a national strike happening, and basically people block the road, and they're like, you know, like, can you imagine like a mob rule where like basically people are like in the middle of the road, so we stop the car, the bus, excuse me, and a car in front of us tries to go through, and they basically break the car. And like smash all the windows. So we are sitting there. It's the heat of the day. The dogs have gone to the bathroom all over the place. The bathroom has overflowed on the bus and the rain is coming down. Like we don't have food. There's no air conditioning. It's very hot. And um, It's like one of those cruises where everybody gets sick. It was. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Did you hear about? And like four hours later, the manifestation clears up and then they're like we can't start the bus we can't start the bus <laughs> and so the driver says like todo el mundo afuera pujar you know empujar and so everybody go outside and, and push and I <laughs> and I looked at my friend Dan and I was like no no puedo creer I can't believe this and there's a woman who's dressed like she was dressed like traveling really nice she had like a skirt on and high heels and she was like all done up like if she was probably visiting family and she looks at me and she's like creelo y vivilo believe it and live it and I was like, you know, that's a really good point. And so I ended up going out pushing and we ended up making it 28 hours to Cartagena. And that, I, but that, what she said to me, I swear to God, like it really was like my motto from that point forward. I mean, other than FOMO, of course, but. Believe it and live it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, you're like that could the, be the artwork. You're like the best guest ever. You're like barely in college, <laughs> uh, just because of that story. So, so, so for the record, this podcast yes has gotten some amount of criticism for how much me and Marshall a tangentialize and b let the guest tangentialize. Uh, and that story, that story was awesome. Uh, the, Thank you. Um, yeah, so for whoever doesn't doesn't like the tangents, I know turn it's turn a good takeaway, right? Turn Though, like when you. When some, like we live in New York City, people live in other places. Like crazy things happen all the time. You yeah. can decide how to react. And that, I was not equipped to handle that situation. I hadn't been anywhere in my life. I just I was nervous. I was scared. Like you know, oh we I forgot to tell you we got stopped by the by paramilitaries and searched. That was another part of the story. So like it was very traumatic. 
And I, but what am I going to do? Sit there and cry? No, I, right. I, it was uh, toughing me up. It was a good experience. Just hold the old man's urine and do it. Yeah, exactly. It was. Um, <laughs> wait, what was so yellow? <laughs> he needed to drink more water. Wait, water he was blind. Bag. How did he make it into the bag? Well, no, I mean you like look, tactile. Look, yeah, tactile yeah, experience. Tactile. It's just like we're gonna blindfold you and have you pee in a ziploc and see how you do. At the end of the podcast, all of the men in the room will be peeing in a plastic bag. Yeah. I am shocked at brain power at those moments when you reach into a bag looking for a specific object and you can find it so easy. It's like brains are amazing. Yeah. Do you ever do that? Maybe like uh, purses or anything? Poorly. You have ever like, peed no. in a bag? Or- <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Like looking for your nail clippers or something in a bag and you could just like pick it right up. Anyway, so uh, we're back at school because you said that you had a chain, like you were a workaholic well, before well, and so- a lot of painters, myself included, are 100% workaholics. Yes. Like it's... 24 7 and it's never stopped it's been years and years well, it's a combination of like needing to make money and like doing something kind of impractical and doing something impractical that you actually really really love um mm-hmm. that, that the money allows you to keep doing the it's but, like a perfect um, storm for bad but, relationships yeah. <laughs> so patrick after taking the old man's year and pushing the bus up you've decided to believe and live it and you come back yes to at this point is it still georgetown or is it you it's know still the undergrad right. i'm laughing because i'm about to tell you what i did with this new ethos but no i want to go into that how did you so you decided at school to take it easy a little bit is that what you were saying you decided to i worked less and i got higher grades you worked less and got this is what i'm fascinated with yeah was did you would you say you found more balance after the trip to argentina Definitely, oh. I realized that doing a lot of extra work was a use of time, was a waste of time. You know, and then well, you know, when you, I think you anybody, stop, you stop going into the empty classrooms and lecturing to the to oh, your I imaginary still friends. That, or, but like, then, I didn't read the unassigned chapters, and I would skim more. And I realized, like, I don't know. It just, I also think when you're a senior in college, like everything, all the classes are easier. Mm. But mm. I mean, we, you know, what I learned when I went out to work in finance is like, there's no nothing's original in in the work world. You just take somebody else's work and copy and paste it. So like. Learning how to do things quickly and just get them out of your way is really critical in the business world. Unfortunately, it creates a lot of mediocre work, but that's how most people succeed. Mm, so what did, you do with the, mm, what, did you, what did you do with the free time? Oh, oh I... I went to all the monuments in DC. I had, you know, I worked. Went to the Smithsonian. <laughs> obviously, every Friday that was my Friday routine. Hmm. No, I was just. I think I just. I had more time for my more intellectual pursuits. Like I was still interested in. I. I was really. I came back. You know, like at the end of Greece, where Sandy, like she shows up as like this, like really preppy girl from Australia, and then at the end she's like wearing the all leather. That was me mm-hmm. after Argentina. Like I got off the plane, <laughs> I had like leather everything, and like I only hung around with like Colombians after, her, and like. <laughs> It was very, I, I was totally became like this Euro kind of guy mm, for a while. Cool. Um, nice. and, um, and you're still studying international relations or is this when you decide the investment bank, you know, like the. Well, I did. And I wanted, so my goal was to go back to Argentina. I was in love with Argentina and I had worked down there for, for a semester. And my boss was like, you know, you want to come work for this? It was an insurance company. And I had this moment where I was like, I love Argentina, but insurance feels like it would be just not for me. 
And then investment banking, where everybody, the smart kids were going at the time, it was like all of the creme de la creme was going to investment banking. And I wanted to do that, but I knew that I didn't want to do like just anything. So I got a job in Latin American investment banking. Mm. So for me, it was like, I get to take the passion and combine. And this this will be a recurring theme as we'll talk about tonight. I My whole thing is like, I'll never do the boring thing if I can't find the passion to make it worth my time. So like mm. being able to do Latin America, use my Spanish every day, learn Portuguese, spend time traveling, like... It made the like I'm, I'm, investment making is is listen. I mean it it's it's not that bad. I mean like it's fine. Mm-hmm. You learn some things, but like it's not a very like enjoyable lifestyle for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But if you can do it in a way that allows you to travel and have experiences, like you meet wonderful people, you learn a lot. So that's what I chose to yeah. do. And frankly, I really did it for the money. I mean, I I thought like, geez, I'm gonna make more money. I mean, my first year out of college, I think I made more money than my dad did. Wow. So yeah. In yeah. the 10 years that we've been at <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're doing that. Um, then, um, then what happens to them? So I do that, and then I move very quickly into venture capital in Latin America because I actually, as much as I wanted to like investment banking or try to like it, I, was, I didn't like it and I was bad at it. It was so boring. Oh, my God. Like, hmm. literally, it was the worst. And so I was going to quit and do a Fulbright, and then I started applying, and my boss said – don't do that. We have a venture capital group. Go meet with them. And I was like, I'm done with finance. I don't like this. And he said, just meet with them. And I went and I met with these people and I thought they were super impressive. And so I ended up getting hired um, and started investing in all these tech companies in Latin America, which was amazing. And so I did that for a couple of years. Then the tech bubble burst in 2001. We basically fired everybody on all our companies. And I was like doing that. It was kind of a negative time. Mm. And then 9-11 happened. Mm. And I was like, you know, living downtown Manhattan. Okay. And then I was just like, I need, I applied to graduate school and I was like, I want to get out of New York. And it seemed like everybody was going to business school and, you know, maybe I should do that too. I, I didn't want to miss out on you know, that experience at all. Everybody was doing it. It seemed like a smart thing to do. So I applied, I got in and then, um, and then I left New York in 2002 and went to the business school at HBS. Okay. Uh, were you, were you downtown when the, when the trade center i was at home so the story is i took my gmat which is you know the test you take for business school i took it the day before and i used my old grinder skills i studied like a madman for that test i didn't study for the sat because i believed i I, this is how like out of touch i was with reality as a high schooler growing up i thought the whole point of the sat was that you don't study for it so you show your actual aptitude (laughs) (laughs) so if you study it's like cheating and so by the time i took that i knew like to study for it so i worked really hard and i got a great score so i went to pravda i don't know if people remember pravda which was in um lafayette street i know what pravda is yeah of course we've got you know she's the belarusian so i went to pravda and i just like lit it up lit it on fire Got home, went to sleep, woke up. Um, my alarm went off. I hit the snooze button because I'm like, I'm gonna be out of that job soon. Came back on the alarm, and they were like, a plane, a small plane hit the trade center. Like they made it sound like a little tiny plane. So I hit snooze again, and by the time it came on again, it was like a second plane had hit. I was living on 16th and 6th. I ran to the corner, saw the whole thing down 6th Avenue. Whoa! And I had the night before actually said to my friend I was out with, I was like, I love the World Trade Center. I love this view. So I mean, I got that moment of appreciating it before it was gone, but. Mm. But um, yeah, after 9-11, I just was like, it, New York was awful. It was a horrible time to be here. It was very depressing. And so I was really, I was like, I, I need to move out of New York. Mm. Wow. 
Um, and how did you find Boston and Harvard? And this is when you capture the cultural zeitgeist of FOMO, or you believe it and live it. And I did, and and uh, you know, it's like again, I grew up in a very middle class family. I know, you know, we had everything we needed, but we didn't have a lot of extras like that. The silly things I had saved every dime I made working in finance. So I decided, like, I bought, I got a Saab, which was my dream car as a kid, hmm. and I just was like, oh, I'm living large. Like I'm just gonna drive around Boston. I'm Storo Drive and driving like a Bostonian. And wait. A sob was your dream car. I know. It's not lame. That tells you. I loved it. You know, it's like being in an airplane when you turn the key. Okay. Sorry. Please no. continue. That, that <laughs> intervention was harsh. No, I'm kidding. It's funny. So that, that, that summer, I guess it must have been like like around, yeah, 2000, like, Two or so, I, in, yeah, yeah. So I, I started. That was the summer I started selling paintings, and I was like in Boston. So I went from like ha- being a student, having no money at all ever, um, to what felt like having a lot of money, mm-hmm. meaning selling like three to six hundred dollar paintings on Newbury Street. And I went and did my dream things, which was get those fancy drinks at Starbucks every once in a while, yes. uh, and getting some sort of dress I really wanted on Newbury Street. That was like my my living large. I mean, I just it's exactly. It's like I remember like driving. In my car, I had like a Green Mountain coffee in there, and I was wearing like my L.O. Bean fleece, and I was like, I have won it life. Like, it's <laughs> yeah, only yeah. up from here. Yeah, that was the so I was also, I was in Boston that summer also feeling I, I, like I'd won it life. I would take my grandmother's, like I would take take turns doing it, you know, first one grandma's and the other. I would take them to like kind of not really fancy sushi restaurant, but like I would take them out for sushi. Totally. And for me, any sushi By the way, fancy in sushi. Boston, sushi is like basically that is the most fancy food you can eat. Yep. Uh, um, like, and, you want freaking sushi? Yeah. yeah <laughs> what are you? I, you think you're better than me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as I got my driver's license, I I got my fancy Newbury Street dress, and I took my grandmother's out for sushi, and that was like, and I felt like I made it. Yeah, and like, that, that's awesome, actually. Yeah. And, that, and that feeling is really great, right? And yeah. and you get a little taste of it, and and so I was feeling very like successful or whatever. I don't know. Then I got the HPS, and it was very. Amazing. I don't know. People always have these notions about what Harvard Business School is. And for me, it was being surrounded by very ambitious people who wanted to do really interesting things. And that could be in many different in the financial world. Sure. I had people who just like want to run a business, want to have a thousand people reporting to them. I had people who wanted to work in nonprofits. I had people who wanted to do entrepreneurial, whatever it is. And in fact, many of my classmates have gone on to do like these really cool things. And I just felt for the first time, like really, okay, this is now I'm getting deep into my psyche. So as a kid in Maine growing up, I was definitely not particularly well liked. I was like this chunky kid. People made fun of me. And I felt like very, you know, sort of ostracized. And then I get to HBS and I felt like I'd found my tribe and everybody was really nice to me. Hmm. And I felt well liked. As somebody who likes to please, it was very much a good place for me. Hmm. Were you always extroverted? I No. HBS turned me into the monster hmm. that I am today. <laughs> Literally, like you put that anybody in that, it, they create because the whole educational system is around talking. So we don't have lectures. You go into every day and it's a group discussion. It's called a case method. You read a case study and then you discuss it. And so you are taught how to present yourself vocally, I guess verbally, for two years. Wow. And you just come out of it a much more outgoing person. And also, I mean, where they teach you how to say things with incredible conviction, even if you don't really know the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might notice that in this interview today, everybody. <laughs> Lots of conviction. Yeah. Um, yeah, are you one of these people who can talk about a book you haven't read with like incredible conviction? That, you because I've seen, always wait, admired that skill. <laughs> have you ever seen the movie Metropolitan by Whit Stillman? 
one of the main characters, yeah. they're talking about the book Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. And this guy, Tom, is like talking about it with great authority. And the woman's like, well, when did you read it? And he's like, well, I didn't read it. I just read the criticism. You know, I don't like to, I don't need to read the book. I like the criticism because then I get the book story, but I also get some insights. Um, so the answer is probably so, <laughs> for me. It's a really good friend of mine from high school. But I mean, he always had that gift. He'd say, oh, have you read this book? And he was like, oh, yeah. And then he would tend to be like, yeah, I didn't really like it. And he would kind of give you this, all this scathing critique of it. And a few years in, I was like, you never actually read any of these books, have you? Because he went on to found a really, really big deal kind of genetic analysis company. And he's very successful without ever having finished college or wow. possibly high school so what is that is that gift the gift of talking about books you haven't read i feel like people who have it get really far in life <laughs> i think it's generally and i've seen this a lot in listen i think you know we always talk about and this is like a huge cultural conversation about like who's speaking in the room who's speaking in the meeting like the the you know the white man feels very comfortable presenting themselves like in other groups of people may not and like you have to be really aware of the conversations that are happening in your part in it so like I've, I've learned that now like I'm much more perceptive of like where I am in a conversation but I will say like just standing up raising your hand and being able to express your opinion, which a lot of people aren't willing to do, is like just this first step in anything. Like I'm always amazed when I go to a meeting and nobody talks. Like what the heck? Just mm -hmm. say something. Even take a risk. So where did you? So you graduated. You found found your tribe. Yeah. Then you you were doing what from there? So I came out, um, and I <laughs> I spent six months. So basically, I had worked in Latin America venture capital. I loved it, okay. but when I was in school, the whole market imploded. There were no jobs. So then I tried to reinvent myself as like a European and I spent the summer in Prague. Didn't work because my name's not like Mirko. Um, <laughs> then I came back and basically I, I couldn't get a job because people didn't respect my experience in Latin America. Um, they were like, oh, Latin America, you know, what is that? And so I found a job. But my thesis was like, I like investing, so let me just get a job at an investing firm and be back in New York. And I got a job with a firm that's based in New Jersey with these terrible people who I did not get along with. And I worked there and I had to commute every day and I hated it. And then the this was like 2005? 2004. Four. Okay. By month three, I took a nap under my desk one day because it was like on a, it was like an office park in New Jersey. My only friend was the woman, Sylvia, who was the Peruvian um, person who worked at the cafeteria. Like literally when I left the firm, she was the only person I said goodbye to. Whoa. She was really nice. I hated, the, I was very unhappy there. And so three months in after my nap, I looked for another job and I got a job doing investing, private equity, you know, investing in growing companies um, all over the world. And so I started traveling a lot to Pakistan and the Philippines and, and, and um, Colombia and Ecuador and China, investing in fast growing companies. And it was going extraordinarily well. I was getting promoted. I was just like doing great. But unfortunately for me, I was working for AIG capital partners mm -hmm. and in 2008 mm -hmm. of course AIG was it, the like the first to go the mm -hmm. and the biggest you know was not too big to fail apparently <laughs> and my stock fell 97 percent and so it was like this huge wake-up call I ended up getting really sick I ended up having night sweats swollen glands blurry vision for months like it was a rough go wow wow just uh, obviously stress induced yes and 
I was also in terrible shape, like working and traveling that much. I'd put on like 20 pounds. Mm. And so um, it was really weird. I was in, we had a board meeting in West Virginia, actually. And they picked us up at the airport because it was a call center business. And we had a call center there. This was right after the financial crisis had, had hit. And I hadn't yet gotten sick. It was the week, it was a, three days before I got really sick. And the only car they could find to pick us up was a white limo. And so we're driving around AIG employees in a white limo in West Virginia. It was it was pretty gnarly. <laughs> and that night, I woke up in the middle of the night and my whole bed was covered in sweat and I felt the gland and I was like, oh, oh my God. God. And so I came back to New York and went to my doctor at the time who was like a couple blocks from where we're sitting today. Mm. And they didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was thought I was dying because I Googled my symptoms. Yeah, and wait, never, yeah, don't Google ever do that. Never people. Google you, symptoms. Yeah, don't do it. Not helpful. You You're not a doctor. Yeah. Was, it, was it cancer? Exactly. Like, oh, like, you can four Google, types. You can Google yourself <laughs> into like every type of cancer in about yeah. 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. It was awful. And I basically like didn't leave my house for – I mean I tried to go into work and I couldn't – like I try to look at the screen and I, and my, my vision was so blurry that I have to put my face right up to it. It was, it was terrible. And it was a very, um, it was like a really valuable experience in the end because I basically got so sick that I was like, I got to change some things about my life. And I also have to recalibrate the way I think about employment. Mm -hmm. But my big takeaway, and if anybody, you know, if you don't remember anything about me except for this, is that like, we all are invested in these systems, whether it's the art world, whether it's the financial world, the, whatever it is, the system doesn't care about you. And when it decides mm. to kick you out and chew you up and spit you out, like you, you're out. And basically what I realized is like, I had to take control of my own destiny and find some way to create something for myself that wasn't based on like who I worked for. Mm. Mm. That's a big deal. So that was another moment almost like on the on the bus. That was a big shift for you. Okay, so yes. um big time. So, so at this point you're fat, you have night sweats yes. and a lot of anxiety. <laughs> and are you coincidence galore? <laughs> yeah. And 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 are you also unemployed? Basically, how do you go about, you know, you said you're recalibrating. How do you go about the process of kind of recreating yourself? Yes. It's a, okay, so I have some a couple of anecdotes. So just like a example. very simple question, you know, like obviously you can answer that. And like, <laughs> it's it's. I'll give you a couple of anecdotes that will tell the whole story. Number one is um, something changed inside of me, and I was like, man, I've invested in a system that doesn't really work, and it's messed up. So I need to take control and change. And then I was like, you know. I came from this little town in Maine. I'm living in New York City. I did all these things I never thought I'd do. Like I'm, I've achieved more than I ever even hoped to. So like, you know, it's, I, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. I need something else that I can do for myself. And mm -hmm. I can be successful in other ways. I didn't know how. And then, um, so basically I got in, I, I basically started like not working very hard and just going to the gym all the time and running and running and running. And I basically rested and got back to wellness. Um, that was A. B was I became... Um, like kind of very subversive. So for example, I became like a little performance artist. I cleaned off every surface of everything in my office and hid everything so that if you walked by, it looked like nobody worked there. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd make videos and stuff of this stuff. I would make these really weird videos of like the office where it was empty and just tight. So I became like very, I just kind of like, just like lost faith. It's like it's like if you're in a religion and then you you leave it. You're like all the, the thing you put your faith in is gone. And, right? mm -hmm. and you you might as well drink the wine from the altar right like right before you leave the church. Totally, so. totally. And eat the wafers. So. But I just couldn't. I couldn't stay there. Um, and so I ended up leaving. And then I took a year off. I did a sabbatical. Hmm. 
And the sabbatical was transformational because my brother sat me down, this jazz musician. We were sitting at Le Beaumonier, which is um, on Hudson Avenue, or 8th Avenue, excuse me, the West Village in Jane. And he said, you should get up every day for six months not knowing what you're going to do that day. And I was like, that's crazy, man. Like, oh my God, jazz musicians, what's up with you? (laughs) And I did it. And then I did it for another six months. And I realized, and I went to France and lived there. I did apartment swaps to France and Barcelona. And I just like deprogrammed myself from the treadmill that I was on. And I realized like that that was a very essential part to like just getting kind of my mojo back. Hmm. Do you do you find like in that world, I'm seeing you being a bit of a, a prankster, you know, cleaning off your desk and stuff like that. Are most people in that environment, would you say they're they're were they were a lot of fear in that environment, like for your job and your promotion, real competitive? Here's what happens in the financial world and in many careers, and, and I imagine in the art world as well. You work really hard. You get that job, and they hand you that business card with that logo on it. And you go back to your grandma's house or your your class you know, reunion or whatever it is, and you hand out the old Goldman Sachs card. And like that is, it's like, I work at Goldman Sachs. I work at Gagosian, whatever the heck it is. Mm-hmm. And you're, so much of your self-worth and your self-esteem is tied up in these brands that we all work for. Mm-hmm. And that we don't remember that none of that matters. The only person who's, the only thing that matters on your business card is your name. Because that's the only one that you actually truly own. Hmm. Hmm, that's great. What was I trying to talk you into? I mean, I feel like we, like we met up several times and each time I was like, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Could you do, do you want to do it with? What, what oh, Gagosian? Uh, yeah. What, 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 you wanted me to do some undercover ops for you with that artist friend of yours named Trek. Uh, yeah, yeah um, right, right. I think we wanted to go into Gagosian and there was an artist there who was painting on photographs and I knew it. And oh, or maybe it was Mary Boone. You wanted me to write an article on like the uh, Post and I think I, I think I actually wanted, I think I wanted you to pretend like, uh, pretend like you were interested in buying it and then be like either shocked to discover it was on a photograph and it was pretending to be like a real painting. And that guy's still out there, probably getting museum retrospectives by now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and I felt like I was like, okay, I need someone who's polished enough, but yet like kind cray. of ju- uh, cray cray. Those uh, pranks will still work, Patrick. Um, yep. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? I actually figured that you just like wouldn't give a fuck what people thought of you, um, and you'd be confident enough to do it because I think like, at the time uh, originally I said yes to you, and then I was like, oh my god, what if like. I, I don't know. I, then I was I mean, like, it was oh, probably a good thing. So, so, so honestly, <laughs> a lot of my ideas involve like getting into some amount of trouble. So it's probably a good thing that you didn't. Uh, okay. Good in, to know. In, in, the, in the overall scheme of things. <laughs> but um, I, I like that idea of you being the only person that matters on the business card. Yeah. That's a really pretty beautiful. Because like I think so many artists, their identity gets wrapped up in a show or are they selling or – whatever and man they will it takes a lot of fortitude to keep going when stuff isn't rolling you know it's well we all use people's we we're all borrowing brands in order to enhance our own credibility so it's whether it's you know where you went to school or you get that new york times right up and then all of a sudden you want to put that on the website and that's cool like it's it creates social proof however i have seen it so many times there your identity becomes subsumed by whatever this thing you're doing is and like you know they don't care about you um and mm-hmm. all of these things are also very transient totally um, i know sometimes i also think that i'm immune to all of it and the guitarist from queen wears my t-shirt and i'm like oh my god look at this guy <laughs> but <laughs> you create so your own brand so you're a great example of that like 
you you and you know when, you don't when you hand out a business card you know or give people your instagram that's it's yours like nobody can take that from you uh, well, <laughs> and, I mean. and and i think that's the the thing that i realized was like that was my big other takeaway it was like these companies don't care about you. They can fire you tomorrow and you have nothing. And so like you worked all those late nights and you like missed your vacation for these people. And like when it wasn't convenient or whatever, then you're, or when things went not, it wasn't even that. I mean, just things moved against the company, you know, and this happens all the time. Look at WeWork, Theranos, all these companies, when they fail, like everything you did doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so you're better off to recognize the risk of that and take proactive steps to make sure that you're insured. But that was the question I had about like the culture of fear because it seems like, I mean, it seems like that would dawn on a lot of people in in art or in business, but it takes a lot of courage to just step out of it and be like, you know what, I'm not going to take the paycheck for a year like you did and I'm going to. Oh, it's, it also sounds like you also had a financial buffer zone from like sure. not, being, from not being financially stupid. I also like, was like, working like, on the side and stuff. So I was consulting, but for sure, like, listen, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, well, you, you need to make a plan to do these kinds of things and to have your buffer zone. Like it's certainly, you know, it's, I don't want to come at it and be like, oh, it's just so easy to do that. No, it's not for every, not so, everybody can so, do that. So just out of interest, mm-hmm. like what's the amount of runway you would need in order to do that? I know mine. I know oh, like that a I- year? I need to like like I can't yeah. like financially I yep. feel unsafe unless I've got two years runway. I had like roughly, jeez, I mean n- not including like four hundred one k and other like long term savings, but like just cash, cash, cash. I probably had like four. We we got sidetracked from so. Is that your lowest point? Is it like the bottom of your U? Definitely two thousand and okay. September two thousand and eight was like the financial crisis and my crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in there with you. I was in art school and just like, just seeing zero future for myself because it was New York City and I was working as a nanny actually for two different families. They were both investment people. Mm-hmm. So they were panicking and I was just like, no one will ever buy a painting again, you know? <laughs> I mean, I've had friends who didn't recover. I see it, mm. you know, people who just never found work again. I mean, they found something, but like it really in all industries, you know, I know it, it was very shocking. So I really like the way your brother put it as we're talking and I have this dream, which will, by the way, right now was like two small kids will never happen. Mm. So waking up every morning, not knowing what you're going to do that day right now, that's, that, that makes so much sense because you need, you basically need space in order to find what the next thing is and you don't have that space even in a good routine totally like you need a while to just let your mind meander so your mind is meandering you're living in barcelona you're in paris so i come back i was i didn't go for a long time there i went a couple months and then i come back and um i then i started looking for this is like so you know it's kind of my like my senior in college i was like i was about to you know i like have this big experience and then i go back to my comfort place so i was like started looking for jobs doing what i did before Okay. Except that, number one, the market was horrible. Yeah, there are no jobs, yeah. Number two, every time I would interview, I'd be like, oh, these people are just, they're not my people. Like, I just can't see myself doing this. Hmm. It's not for me anymore. Like, I just was like, oh, you know, I've seen the Matrix and like the Matrix is not for me and I'm just not going to, I'm going to diversify myself. I'm never going to be put all my eggs in one basket ever again. And so this is what led to. First of all, I started doing a bunch of consulting work and I, you know, got some clients and like with the World Bank and others and it was great. I was making some money, but I realized, okay, like I do a project and the minute it's done, that there's no more money and 
you know, when you work in an investment business, typically you have an ownership of any of the profits of the fund. So you have long-term incentives. Like you actually are, you know, you, it's like you own stock in the fund. And when you're doing consulting, you don't. And so I realized there's no upside. Like I do the work, say I do a project and then it becomes wildly successful. I experience, I participate in none of that. Mm. And so my big takeaway from this experience was like, geez, like, you know, I'm doing this consulting work. It's freelancing. But freelancing, you know, unless you're working, you're not making any money and you have no future, you know, wealth out of that. Mm. And also, if you look at companies like, you know, when you hear like Facebook goes public and creates like a thousand millionaires or whatever, oh, the assistant, the janitor became a millionaire. It's not because of his or her salary. It's because they own stock. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, ownership, I need the ownership. And so I decided to spend part of my time and money working on side projects where I would be an owner of those things. And so this was like my big epiphany in like 2011 and 12. I started investing in some startups and in, in different projects to supplement consulting work I was doing. And that luckily for me, some of those went well and turned into pretty large companies now. And I started writing about that and I started writing. I also started exploring my creative side again and rediscovering the creativity, writing in the Huffington Post about Dina and all of our art friends and about Tan and all you know his work. <laughs> and you can find these online somewhere, I'm sure. And then I started writing about this new idea I had, which I called the 10% entrepreneur, which is how you have a day job, but on the side, do something build something for yourself that you can take with you wherever you go. In fact, build more than something, build many things. And I ended up writing a book proposal um, about this concept, the 10% entrepreneur. And then um, I was introduced to an agent in the UK and then we sent it out and we were rejected 33 times. Everybody rejected us. Hmm. And then this reporter that we talked about earlier called me up and said, I'm writing an article about FOMO. Um, he wrote it came out and I thought I'd be like well one line he ended up making it all about me which was whoa I'd never had any press it was really through I was at a tarmac in Argentina I was in Buenos Aires flying to New York I read the article on my phone it's this was 2014 I was like it seems okay because um, I was like what's the downside here like what what would you know I'd never been in a magazine um i read it again i had a glass of wine read it again another glass of wine read it again slept woke up read it again put it on facebook woke up after i took a nap in new, in new york i had like 300 likes getting emails from people i haven't spoken to in years and sent it to my agent she sent it to penguin and i had a book deal two weeks later Mm. Wow, <laughs> that's how it works. Wow. So I must have. I met you right before that. Yes. around 2013. You were my. You were my. Um, how do you say? Like my lucky charm. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm thinking it's a good thing that it wasn't a year later because you would have been way too big of a deal and you wouldn't have been writing about. It. So I, when I met Patrick, I introduced him to everyone as an art critic because you were uh, the closest thing I knew. You wrote and you were willing to write about art, so I was like, art. You know, this is this is an art. I was critic just excited Patrick. to learn about something new. You know, I'm a little bit of a gadfly, and so we met at a, at a benefit, the Rainforest Alliance. My hero, Jay McInerney, was also in the room that night. I don't know if you knew that. I Oh, my God. So I did not know I that didn't have the courage to talk to him at the time. Uh, he's up there with my heroes, too. So hey, Jay, I, if you're listening. Um, Evan Trump, guy. are listening. <laughs> I remember like, <laughs> seeing him there, and I really want to talk to him. I talked to him once before. I got a book signed by him, but I felt like such a loser. Because, um, I don't know, I was so insecure. This is when I was like 23. But he was there that night. Thank God I ended up talking to you because, you know, that saved the night for me. 
Um, really, <laughs> it might have saved the night for me too because so that was back when I was getting rejected from all sorts of things too, including so I reached out to every writer that I knew who wrote about anything, being like, "Hey, could you please write about this incredible drawing show I'm putting together?" First, I got rejected from twenty different places trying to get a space for that show, and then once I had the space and we had the show, I got rejected by like twenty different people, and I think that must have been my last ditch attempt. I was like, "I'm going to go to this benefit. I have some sort of painting in it." And and I'm going to talk to a writer. And it was a cool painting. And my friend Guillermo met you first. And then I came over and I was like, oh, like I write for the Half Po. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. You want to come to my show? <laughs> and um, I did. It was called Tiny Spaces or something? No, it was, uh, God, I think it was called The Drawing Room. And oh, The Drawing Room. That, yeah. <laughs> it was the show where I got all the, I mean, we also got all the artists to stay up till like four in the morning, uh, transforming dramatic. the space into like an 18th century drawing room. It was and, awesome. Like, it, it was kind of awesome because it, you know how all artists have like this, the taxidermy, the animal skulls, the human skulls. Mm -hmm. So I got them to bring it all in. Like right now, I'm like, I cannot believe I talked 20 people into staying up till like four in the morning, night after night. Basically I actually like, got sick. I met you, Tan. I met you at that event and we became Facebook friends. That's awesome. <laughs> and now yeah. look at us all these years later. Yeah. And I also met, I met around that time Nick Rad, who I bet a lot of listeners yeah. know and who's an awesome guy. And yeah. then I met Maria Crane, who then I wrote a piece about her and she taught me the difference between uh, conceptual and figurative art. So thanks, Maria. Uh, <laughs> I still know that. <laughs> I think Maria was actually on this podcast back when, well, probably even before I was hosting it. A very drunk yeah. episode Maria was on. A drepisode? Um, <laughs> See, I really make up words. Uh, um, I know. I feel like you've made up five just during the course of this. You want to stick around and rebrand? I mean, it's just cheap. I just combine words together. Like, I mean, anybody could do that at home, if you listeners, if you want to um, make your own McGinnis. <laughs> so I, the, I, I was talking to a friend recently, and they were talking about how impetus for change, like, the two are either a crisis or a great love can make you totally. Change. That is absolutely right. You believe okay, and so it seems like that crisis was a big impetus for change. Are you are you grateful for that? Totally. Yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, it sucked at the great. moment, and it's not like my life is perfect. I still have you know, we all have challenges in life, but I would have never had the courage. And by the way. People thought, I mean, for the first couple of years I was doing my own thing, um, people didn't get it. I mean, my, my mm -hmm. parents were super cool. My, my, my mom has always been like, as long as you have health insurance, you do whatever you want. <laughs> um, I had a lot of friends who later on were like, ended up doing these things for themselves who just like didn't get it. And I had a couple of friends who really helped me, who came after me and were like, you seem a little lost and got me started. And, and then like one of my friends like actually like helped me do my first 10% project. Um, and I invested in his company, which has gone on to be really successful. So like, I really credit him. But what's interesting about it is like, I think anytime you're doing something new, um, there's a lot of doubters and a lot of people who criticize you and for different reasons, it could be about them even, it's not even about you. But I definitely felt, especially coming from these rarefied heirs, like extraordinarily insecure about it. And I remember when I did my first book party for my, 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 the book at the 10% Entrepreneur, which came out in 2016, one of my really close friends who's like a sister to me got up and said like, she like made a little speech at the, at the thing and was like, you know, the first couple of years after you left your job and were doing this, like, I didn't know what you did. Like, I couldn't even describe what you did for a living. And a lot of people say it to me, like, what do you do? Hmm. And I think that is, 
I'm fine with that now. But in the beginning, one of the hardest things about doing something new is the fact that it's very difficult to describe what you do mm-hmm. because you can't put it in terms because you don't know yourself. Talk about all of it. Okay, okay, so what do I do? What, what do you do, Patrick? Sure. Okay, this is um, I do three things. Okay, by, by the way, for anybody who's listening, the answer I'm going to give is because for five years I had no idea. I couldn't tell you. I literally – it's really important and I had this conversation last night at a, at a party with somebody. This guy just quit his job. And it was like the hardest thing you're going to deal with because great guy's very successful and he's looking for his next thing. And I was like the hardest thing you're going to have to deal with is that you won't be able to explain to people what you're doing right now and what you want. Hmm. And you're going to feel judged and you're going to feel insecure and like you're not successful. Just know that and have a strategy. So um, what, what do I do? I do three things. Number one, I do um, investing. So I invest in early stage companies, either my time or my money in startups. So some of which go nowhere, uh, some of which are two of mine have become big companies now that are they're really successful. And those are long term, you know, even if it's successful, it takes six, seven, eight years for you to get your money out. Um, so I do venture capital and I, I'm, I do it on with my own capital because nowadays you don't need to have tons of money to do this. You know, it's not, it's, it's actually surprising how little you need. And then I'm a partner in a fund in Peru and we invest in Latin America, you know, my roots there. So that's one part. Part two is I do consulting. So I work with the World Bank, working with them on advising them on like venture capital all over the world. So they send me, I'm going to Mozambique in two weeks to look at the digital economy of Mozambique and make a recommendation. All those Portuguese classes paid off. (laughs) And then the third thing I do, I'd say that's kind of my day job, those two. The third thing I do is I wrote this book, The 10% Entrepreneur. I have a new book coming out called Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. I have a podcast called FOMO Sapiens, which is distributed by Harvard Business Review, um, where we talk about decision-making. I do speaking. And so I have this kind of like media thing, I guess, like I call it showbiz. It's like all, you know, the speaking books and podcasts and that that's like the hardest part and it's the it's the kind of the startup but you know it's the part that I think is most fun because it's my ideas are out there. Well, it's also like that's that's the universe you built just for yourself yes. like the um which you can kind of shape. I mean you're writing books, you're doing podcasts like you're shaping your universe any way you want. Yes, it's which means it's, that you yes. you're talking to the people you want to talk to. You know, you're picking your guests, you're shaping your life. Yes, it yeah. is all about so the the theme of the podcast which is called FOMO Sapiens is how to find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. That's the whole point of the show. And by the way, everyone should listen to Patrick's podcast. It's probably much better than our podcast. <laughs> it's like, shorter, I'll tell you I've that. that. <laughs> it's, a it's, a, it's a tight 30 minutes. <laughs> 30 kinda, minutes is how long it takes us to like get, get off the ground. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminded me of that book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a yeah. Fuck. It's along th- that thought, I think, is because really honing on on like what you should care about, right? That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, listen, I really... You know, the only reason I wrote this book, so this is like one of these things where I did the 10% Entrepreneur and I, I love, I'm very proud of it. I worked really hard on it. It was my first book. Creative endeavors. Now I have a lot of like love for the creators of the, the painters and the artists because the musicians, because like when I was writing this book, The Suffering, I had a, I got bronchitis. I injured my back. I put on 10 pounds. Like, it was, I was, I have a writing space on 14th street and I'm sitting there one day, I'm like 10 pounds over, my clothes don't fit me. I'm coughing up a storm. I hurt my back and I'm like, God, this is like, this is, there's nothing romantic about this. This is just 
really tough. This is just the grind. So this is called art grind because yeah. like that's what most of it is, right? Totally. It's just a day-to-day kind of like there's like a little excitement when you come up with something and a little excitement when you finish it and someone maybe gives you a medal or a show or you sell a painting, publish a book. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it is just day in, day out. You get up and you hurt your back. and mm-hmm. uh, It is not people don't realize that. friendly. And it's funny because – one of the things that was really helpful to me is that my brother, I call my brother because he writes music and he arranges and he does all, he's like a, you know, he's a musician, he's a working artist. And I would just tell him how I felt. I'd be like, Mike, I spent eight hours. I wrote three pages and I threw them all away and they're terrible. And so he actually was my, my Sherpa through this. He'd be like, hmm. you need, he'd be like, you know, Patrick, the best thing you might be for you. And I was like, go sit in Washington Square Park. Like, <laughs> that's what you need to do today. And you he's like, that's working. Work. And I was like, what? And, you know, I learned from him a lot of that kind of stuff about just like how to be give yourself kind of put yourself in a place to create good work. Yeah, well I think our listeners need to hear that stuff because I know I know I do. I'm just like constantly so burnt out cuz there's oh. there's not a minute of my day where I'm not talking to someone about art like a student or something yes. or meeting with someone about art or painting a painting from like morning till night. It's just over and over, you know. Like you, you want it like that, Marcella. but yeah, but like I'm hearing about go to Washington Square Park. Like I yeah, never yeah, do yeah. that. You know, do you meditate? So I Sorry. I used to no. never do that, and now I kind of make myself do that because, like, in order to want to do the grind, I want to do the grind. I, I like the grind. I'm good at it. But in order to want to do that, you like you need a little bit of space where you just you know like your head is just clear. And for me, that space used to be like I'd get on my bike once a year and like just bike for a month. You and now that I do don't, that. yeah, now yeah. that yeah, yeah. But now now that I don't get to do that sometimes like you just have to go stare like stare at the tree no that's right i think that's totally right and i wasn't used to that because i worked in an office and you just like sit there and whatever you surf the internet all day and having learning how to kind of deal with the creative because the way i write my books is i've done this twice now i go somewhere far away and i just work like 12 hours a day for a month Hmm. and i just grind it up and so like you have to be really deliberate about how you schedule your days so that you have the time because like I this time around I would just watch the Great British Baking Show whenever I would have yeah. writer's block which works by the way I'm serious yeah. like, I don't know That's why I, really I've not watched it yet but I, I hear only the best things about it and, it'll make uh, you feel happy I've never yeah, I've never exactly. I've never even heard this existed am I missing out the, yeah, uh, yeah you uh, want to this is the fear of missing out yeah, on the Great totally. ba- British Baking Show the- you know yeah one of my fears is that it's so easy like, I don't want to die alone painting in my studio. Mm. It's so easy to do yes. in our line of work. Yes. And I, that's romantic, though, to me. Really? <laughs> or, yeah, you, you just want to be that skeleton? Well, not if it's a murderer. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to die with a paintbrush. There's something about that. Hand. Oh, yeah. man. Did you guys recently see that movie, The Lighthouse? Oh, I've I've been seeing the. It's uh, unbelievably the... good, and it's just like two people in a lighthouse, kind of going a little insane. Don't kill the seagull. And I know it was a dark, weird movie, but I was just like, I would love to be there. That is my dream. Wow. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to die. Like I don't want to die at all. Paintbrush or no well, paintbrush. Well, especially I just, I, in like, a I, studio alone. No, I just don't want to die. I don't, like I want to live for a very, very, very long time, and preferably not get old or sick. Not making too many requirements of life. Like a very, you know, very, very modest to the, but like at least a few hundred years. Come on, eighty is nothing. Like nothing. Uh, 80 or maybe 90 at best is what we got what's next for you you're going to publish a book book soon like 
where did like this universe that you're making? What kind of universe is it? Talk yes, a little bit about this that. Is the ch- okay, I'll tell you the challenge. The challenge is time. So there's just one of me. In the beginning, I, I'm i frugal. I don't like spending money on unnecessary stuff. Like, I mean, I, I like nice things like anybody, but I'm like really careful about like, you know, wasting money on silly things. And so, but at the same time, if you want to do anything scalable, you can't do it all yourself. So my challenge has always been, my big challenges that I deal with on a daily basis are, how do you scale? A, and B is, I spend a lot of my time, I'm a curious person and I'm, I'm a helper and I'm like, I'm a pleaser. I spend a lot of my days, like people email me out of the blue I haven't spoken to, like, can you help me with this? Can I meet with you about this? And I, and I love that. But then I'll look at my calendar and I was like, I'm like, God, I spent nine hours today helping people solve their problems. And I have my own issues and things that I have mm-hmm. to do or work that I have to get done. And so being, and I'm terrible at that. So being deliberate with my time is really, those are the two things that, that I that are like my big challenges. Now, how do I deal with that? On the scalability side, I've learned to outsource. I'm hiring people to work with me and I and so I get a lot of help now. And you know, the as I have more success, I'm able to afford to do that. On the other one, I don't know. I'm still bad at that. And you know, I, I can't resist because I have that FOMO. Like somebody reaches out, oh can we get together? I'm like, yes. And then I'm like, why did I say yes to that? Damn it. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of what I'm doing in the next like say three years or one year or whatever i mean i i have um cool a couple cool things that are happening uh i'm excited about it anyway oh i can't tell oh i can't tell the first one i'll tell you guys after all fair okay. i have a media thing that's happening next month but it's not allowed to be said yet so um but if you will um, we'll give my info later but if you follow me you can find out i have a pretty exciting media thing happening um i'm gonna I, i'm trying to I'm trying to now, like I had this imposter syndrome with the, with the, with the, um, podcast where I was like, like my podcast. And I think it's kind of like, I just want to invite my friends and cool people that I know. Mm-hmm. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's, yeah, that's, that's what we do. And then like, I, you know, like, like with a sprinkling of like more successful people. Probably. Right, right. Totally. And then you get the Andrew Yangs and whatever. And then I have people are like, well, you know, you could get like, you can get this person or that person. And so I'm like trying to be thoughtful about who are having the confidence to invite some pretty high profile people and see how it goes mm-hmm. um, and mix them in with like, I like to tell the people I like to have on my show are like people I really respect who are doing amazing things things that maybe you know already plus like people you don't know but i know and i think they're great and somebody needs to shine the spotlight on them because like what they're doing is awesome um so i'll continue doing the podcast i have a book coming out in may and the whole big you know thing i want to focus on is, is you know getting out and just doing more speaking around this topic because fomo and fobo are sorry we didn't talk about fobo but yeah what fobo fobo is the other much less catchy well the, it's getting it it's, it's, due. it's, it's getting there the... yes okay well um, tell us about you know everyone knows what fomo is it's in dictionary but talk about fobo fobo is this term fear of a better option it's the idea that we never mm-hmm. we're always waiting for something better to come along so basically mm-hmm. the new york disease yes it's like what i what i call the new york disease yes, yes. precisely mm-hmm. and um about a year, and i wrote about it in the same article as fomo back in 2003 Four. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're uh, interesting. The the name of the article was Social Theory at HBS McGinnis's Two Foes, FOMO and FOBO. Mm. And um, FOMO got famous and FOBO didn't. And then last summer, this is a great, like, I like this story because it just shows how, like, um, how we can be all be entrepreneurial. Uh, so I'm sitting at lunch and my phone blows up 
And it's like the New York Times wrote about Fobo. Tim Herrera, who's a article, uh, yeah, does exactly. Smarter Living, wrote about Fobo. And I saw it and I was like happy and mortified. Like I was so upset at the same time because it didn't mention me. And I was like, oh man, I missed out again. Like all these, my words are- It's a better option. My words are so successful. <laughs> and I'm not. And just like, it was very stressful. And um, I wanted to, like, I thought I was like angry at Tim, who, by the way, I now know, and I think he's an awesome guy. And so, but I was like kind of annoyed. And I, th- I was like going to write him an email that probably would would have been like slightly edgy, but I waited like two days. And then I wrote him an, a, 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 like, I thought about it more and I was like, it's really cool what he did. And I wrote him, I was like, I thank you for, for writing about this. I really appreciate it. Just so you know, I created a term. Here's the original article. Like, um, you know, it would love, be really fun to talk about it at some point. And he was really nice and wrote back. It was like, yeah, that's cool. Would you be willing to do an interview? And, um, so I did and they ran the piece and it was a, like a great, you know, I never been in the New York times before. It was just, so like, I think, you know, that was a really good lesson for me about how to be an advocate for yourself, but also like do it in a, in a nice way. Mm-hmm. And when you have people like people like Tim, it's their job to go out and find cool things and they have to do that all the time. So if you are cool, then, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll work with you. And, you know, it's like a journalist's job is to find great ideas, to find stories. Like they, they don't want to be mean to you, but they're busy and they have limited time. So like, as you think about your own work, everybody like building relationships with journalists is is valuable and you can do that by just being a nice person huh. i i know so, so the term building relationships is so awful and the term networking <laughs> is so awful uh but what it actually means is, is there's a lot of cool interesting people to talk to just talk to them and be nice and you know chances are they'll probably like you back well here's the thing there's a great expression from the world of venture capital which is when you ask for money, you get advice. When you ask for advice, you get money. So the same thing with anybody like that. If you come all hardcore to you know art in America or whatever, and you're like, write about me, blah, 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 blah. They're going to get tense because you're asking them for something. And it's like- Yeah, at some point of my curatorial career, it's something that Tan and Marshall did together. It's something that me and Tan did together at some point before Tan cheated on me with Marshall uh, curatorially. Like for a while, I used to have to like beg for spaces and basically Mm -hmm. beg for press. And then at some point, it just started happening on its own, kind of like little by little. And now if I put on a show, it does get, not, not Art in America press, but like enough press where like it feels like it's- you know, leaving a trail and I don't have to like beg or wheedle or I, I don't know, do any of vaguely humiliating stuff I used to have to do in sure. order to like make a show happen. You know, I'm not sure if it happened just because I've been around for long enough uh, or if it's because I stopped asking. And it could be either way, because as your, you and your contemporaries come up, everybody has more power. But the other thing is, I mean, I imagine you help people out as well. It's like mm-hmm. it's, so many people are uh, takers. And you gotta- you're, right. you're right. You're talking about the fear of missing out. I'm a pleaser. I know, Marshall, you're, you're a pleaser too. Mm-hmm. It's really hard when people ask for help. I can't say no, even if I barely know them. Even if it's like my grandmother's friend's great-granddaughter who's like going to art school and needs a letter of recommendation or something and who I've never met. And there's yes. like, yeah, I have to, but my grandmother asked me to, you know, or like- So I have three strategies for you. Okay. Shall I fix my life? Though. Okay. Because I, I mean, this is, I had to learn and I'm still learning. I'm not perfect, but I've learned th- three things that help me. Number one is put it back on them. So when they ask you to write that letter, say, can you do the first draft? 90% of the time, they will never come back to you. Uh, when you ask somebody 
to do some part of what you were like, can you introduce me to somebody? Sure. Can you write the email that I can forward? You'll never hear back. 80% of the time. And the 20% who oh come back to you deserve your help. That's brilliant. That's, that's brilliant. That brilliant. Okay. So put it back on them is the A. B. It's brilliant. Outsource. So for example, I mean, not with a letter, but say just, I just get, have a minion who writes letters. Of I have, I have. So there are people who I'm, I know that say like, I really love what you do. I want to learn what you're doing. Um, uh, you know, and I, so when I have opportunities that I don't have time for, or can't deal with, I send them to them. You know what? You, you want to do this? Give it a shot. You do it. You know, I, I'm big about pushing things down to people who I believe are talented. I mean, I vet them. It's not like I just give it to like, you know, the guy who used to be my doorman. But but I have I, I have a talent base around me. And mm-hmm. I say, I can't do this. You do it. And the third is, um, it's called benching. And it comes from my friend, Michelle. Michelle, she taught me this term and I'm working on it, which is benching is basically when, you know, you get that email Uh, can we meet for coffee? I want to learn about how to be an artist. Say, yes, absolutely. I'm busy um, for the next two months. Can you email me in eight weeks and we'll set up a time? Basically, you're just pushing that off and then you basically stack them all in a day. You you have your Friday, which is when you deal with all the people who benched you. You benched, Mm -hmm. I should say. And because because they're asking for something of you, you can tell them, you can dictate the timing. (laughs) And so I just (laughs) like get it all done at once. Hmm. Okay, and that way, nice. and that way you're okay. That's brilliant. That I'm trying all of these yeah, things that's... tomorrow because I also wind up with a bunch of anxiety because I want to help, but then as I procrastinate writing the letter of recommendation or whatever it is, it gets harder and harder to write, and I have more and more guilt towards that person. And then when they ask me the next thing, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I got like I feel so guilty about not having done the previous thing that I then feel like I have to do the bigger thing that I definitely don't want to do and i'm assuming your life is about 10 times that because you're a lot more successful i don't know about that but i will tell you that i get a lot of really nice one thing that happens when you have a book or you're you're an artist or whatever you have people who are participating in the stuff that you create and they live with it and they come back to you and they have comments or ideas and like i always get these i had this guy in dubai who made a video review of my book over the weekend and he asked me to watch it and give him comments and like i'm happy i want to do that because like i thank you right but I'm not going to do it that day. So I put it on. I have lists. I also keep tons of lists. And I have, you know, a, a do later file. I, I do everything. Do today. Do in a month. Or do in a week. And I just file it away. And I'll just, when I have a minute, I'll look at the video. And I'll send him a comment. Hmm. Um, I actually have a list called um, things that I really don't want to do. But I feel like I have to do oh anyway. <laughs> By setting up that name, it That's just creates the wrong in. culture. <laughs> yeah. really, my things turn- that I'll really enjoy doing. <laughs> so much <laughs> well while, while we're sort of picking the smart successful guy's brain i have a question um yeah, yeah i know is that the last it, it might, successful person on this yeah exactly it might it might put you on the spot a little bit because mm-hmm. you you so like a lot of our listeners would be the the economics of their reality is not great in business terms yep. they're there's even, even the successful people. Even actually. the successful. Yeah, yeah. So like it's the economy is a lot of people doing this thing. A lot of people doing it at a really high level. And it's and so and not a lot of people buying it. Or you and you could teach, not a lot of teaching jobs, you know? And also quite a bit of student debt when you get out of school. And so with no like 
when when you graduated Harvard, there was probably a path to get jobs. And totally, stuff like of course. That. And you leave a school or whatever, and you're just sort of on your own to try to get the three teaching jobs that exist or sell a painting at a guy, you know? Yes. What, what would you do with those economic realities? I see this with my brother, the musician too. I mean, it's a very similar dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a little easier in that you can always get like some gigs. Um, but teaching is a big part of that. Does he teach? Oh yeah. Yeah. He teaches, he plays, he's done Broadway shows. He does his own music. He, you know, he does everything. My brother is, he writes, he arranges, he's got, he's like a Mac, uh, sort of Jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. But what, um, He's also in this industry where like, you know, it's this messed up thing in creative industries, which, which is like, well, we're not going to pay you that much because we know you love what you do kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, or we'll promote your work, you know, do this for free and we'll, we'll yes. give you publicity. That, that, that's my least favorite one. Like, and it creates this culture around devaluation of yourself and your time because you're like you're always doing things for free. And, and when you're young and when you're young, you, you do, start like devaluating. That. Yeah, because it's like. Uh, yeah, that's so true. Hey, Patrick, mm-hmm. what's this weirdest thing you've ever done for money? Oh, my God. It's probably not very weird. I don't know. Like, <laughs> nothing. Like, it'd be like, I gave a talk at a university. I don't know. Nothing. nothing. <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, I should be asking your musician brother this. I bet he's got what, you know. Yeah, like I don't the- have any. I mean, like, I've done a lot of weird things like speaking and like I do stuff with the State Department. So I once gave a talk in a field in Guinea-Bissau with like a goat next to me. I, that was kind of fun. Yeah, That's yeah. Cool. I mean, that that counts. Like, <laughs> right? um, I've I've been a lot of I've been a, sorry I've been to a lot of unusual places. Um, I've been to ninety nine countries actually. I'm planning one hundred. Wow. So wow. So what happens after a hundred? You're just done traveling. Oh, You're just like it. I think I'm, I'm going never, back to Maine. I'm at just the- staying in the in New York City. I'm not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> That's dead. But yeah. So back to your question. So. One thing I think is really important. I know I know there's this whole movement in the art artistic world about like art entrepreneurship, which is cool. And like actually a friend of mine wrote a book, Amy Whitaker wrote a book called hmm. Oh man, we should Google this because she wrote a really good book on this particular. I could do it. Yeah, do you mind? My phone's on airplane mode because I'm a very polite guest. Yes. Amy Whitaker wrote this book called Art Thinking, it's called. Hmm. And it's really about creative creative living and entrepreneurship together and she teaches these stuff and so she would that book i think is quite interesting i i I read i read it through a long time ago i took a spin through it but um i think the critical mindset shift to make if you can do it and it's hard to do because it's unusual is stop thinking about life in the art what you do is freelancing and try to think about is what can you own so for example my brother he wrote uh he was in this movie um Saving Woodstock which is by Ang Lee. He played like musician number 3. But oh, that's cool. He they told him to improvise some music and he he's like figured out some way to get that basically on the sat like it's like basically on the soundtrack of the film. Not it wasn't in the the record, but he gets songwriting credit. So he gets like a little check every year from whenever they play it on TV. I don't know, it's not a lot of money, but like if you can do something where you're you think about Mondrian, obviously, is a great example. Like, you could put his stuff on T-shirts or any of these. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that you could – you create a piece of work, but that it has a value that continues to accrue to you, 
because we were talking about this earlier, it's like you're okay. Say you like you're an artist, you're a painter, and then like you become super hot, and all of a sudden everybody loves you, and then the secondary value of your work shoots up, and all the collectors make the money, not you. You'll make money if you create new pieces and they sell. But like, what if you could find a way, like what you do, Dina, which is like you've created a channel that you own where you sell things. You created a brand around yourself. It's yours. You have your own sort of like you know, sort of like brand and, and, and shop. And, um, I think that's a really important thing. So if you can think about ways to do that, for example, um, you know, you're an artist, you, you do, uh, the classic example that I love, and I know this is like a ridiculous example, but it makes my point really well is I think his name is David Cho did the mural at Facebook at and Facebook, they gave a stock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, nobody, you know, who has money these days, not, maybe not collectors, tech companies, uh-huh. Go get some stock in a tech company and do their murals for God's sake. Like that, it sounds, I know you don't roll your eyes. I know you're rolling your eyes, listener, but I'm telling you, though, that thinking around how you can create equity value, ownership value around your talent is really important, kind of cerebral shift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, David, David Cho, that's like one of the most expensive paintings of all time, that mural, because it's like he got options and they're worth a ton. Is it art thinking? Yeah, is art thinking. Book? Got it. I was actually at the uh, the Facebook office on uh, 14th recently, and uh, they actually have a floor where they have a bunch of artists work. And okay. I was asking my friend, and I'm like, "How how did this how did this get here?" He's like, "I have no idea, but I think it's really good to know because they probably have a curator in that office choosing all these artists to be presented there, and it's just installation work, and it's just murals." like everywhere on that floor yeah and there's art everywhere there and thing is like how do you tap into that well that i don't know but i would tell you this is another thing my brother taught me for himself because my brother he's gonna listen to this he's gonna love how much we're talking about him mike (laughs) mcginnis mike mcginnis everybody where where could you see him play everywhere like he plays everywhere in new york city like smoke and smalls yeah and he travels around the world he's he's terrific and um he, uh, he, so he's a, a super smart guy, but he's an artist. You know, he's not like, my brother's not like a Wall Street guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he schedules specific time in his day to do the business part of what he does. And he really forces himself to make time for that because when you're, it would be so easy for him to ignore that stuff mm-hmm. and do the creating part. And then, you know, he gets falls behind. And my sister-in-law's a dancer. She does the same thing. And so they really make sure that they calendar the time to spend on the business part of what they do because otherwise they'll never do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, because it's no fun. It's know? no fun. Like, well, like, it's fun like, for like, me, like, but you yeah, don't like I it. Mean, yeah. I mean, um, no, you know, is it fun for you or is what's fun for you is writing your book, doing your podcast and not necessarily res- responding to a bunch of business inquiries. I, so, no, I enjoy that. Really? I really but, do. I'm like, I do. I, I, I'm very happy to respond to everything. It's it's because that's my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Yeah. yeah, no, I actually do exactly what your brother, like I have one day a week. I just do as much stuff that is going to make money or is going to at least like help me not screw up professionally. And then the rest of the week kind of like things trickle back in or they don't. By the way, uh, another thing that I thought was quite interesting, well, two more like fun kind of tips, hacks that I learned on my podcast from different guests. One guest I had on is a guy named Nir Eyal. He wrote a book called Indistractable. And he um, is a guru on like basically how to not be distracted. And he talks about the fact like he, he when he gets emails, anything that doesn't require immediate response, he files. 
And then he has two days a week when he just goes in and he has like, it's called like email Mondays or whatever. And he does all his emails. And what he realizes is that the vast majority of emails you receive actually resolve themselves. Somebody sends you some dumb email. And then if they don't hear back you in three hours, they write you back. You know what? I figured it out. Done. Yeah. So that is a really interesting Mm -hmm. way to deal with email that I've been working with. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I thought was really interesting, I had a guy on the show called Nas Yassin. He, we haven't aired this show yet, but um, it's. Have you heard of Nas Daily? He's a guy who tra- mm-hmm. quit his job. He's working at Venmo, traveled the world, went to 64 countries for a thousand days, made a 60 second video every day about what he experienced. He went from 150 followers on Facebook to 13, 14 million followers. When he would go to a country, he would buy a Facebook ad for $20, take a picture of himself, and say, I'm a. He was an Israeli-Palestinian. I'm an Israeli-Palestinian visiting Armenia. Who wants to meet me? For $20, he get like, you know, 10 responses, whatever the heck. He's get like a thousand impressions. And so point being is uh, what I thought was interesting about that is oftentimes like when we're doing creative endeavors, we just do our email list or whatever. We don't realize for a small amount of money, actually, you could promote your work. You know, 50 bucks mm-hmm. on Instagram or Facebook, you could potentially, you know, get a lot of visibility. Hmm. Hmm, smart. Okay, now I've got to ch- check out his videos. Uh, so I'm kind of fascinated. They're in, incredible. I'm fascinated in, in things that go viral and like how to send them that way, how to send something viral. And all right. His okay. stuff is amazing. And he wrote it, just wrote a book about it. And he was on the show and he's a wonderful human being. Like he's totally the real deal. You know what I mean? Like I felt we vibed. Like I just felt like, like it was like an old friend. He has charisma. I think charisma is a big part of that. But it's 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 about charisma. It's about constancy. And it's about his thing. This was his big insight, which I loved. The preview for the show is that um, it was about people. In his videos, he always focused on people. Hmm. You know, take a picture of a beach. Like you have a travel show. You show a beach. It's like, oh, it's a beautiful beach, beautiful hotel. You tell a story. That's what people respond to. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's true. So by the way, how would you define charisma? Uh- that's a hard question. I would say interest in other people, curiosity. I uh, like genuine interest, good, right? Yes. Like that's like it. like when you like like when you just really, really want to know what's going on inside someone's head. Uh, I mean, that's uh, how I don't know. That's uh, the reason I give that answer, and this is super modest, but I think that's what whatever charisma I have comes from that. You seem genuinely interested, unless you're pretending to be interested. No, you know? it is. That's why, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, you are here talking to a bunch of semi, like we've met before, but really you showed up to the Upper East Side to talk to a bunch of strangers. You've got to be at least a now little bit. Now there's a Second Avenue a subway. Little bit. Yeah, yeah, easy, yeah, right? yeah. But I will, I will tell you a nice story, which is Dina and I knew each other, and then we lost touch because, you know, lives. And then she looked me up this summer and was like, you know, out of the blue, and we met up in Union Square Park and caught up, and it was just—I thought that was really cool. Was That's really, great. It was actually really great. I was listening to your podcast. Didn't really I, like connect you with the guy that Patrick McGinnis uh, wrote that article about our show. That was my last day in New York. That was my last full day. Like the next day, I got ton and a few other people over too pack up my apartment, load stuff in a U-Haul, and then two days later, I took had a took a suitcase full. of 
sketchbooks and strap the baby plants gave gave marshall two of my house plants and strapped the baby to myself and like took the mega bus out of that's how i left the city was like drop the mic and just take off okay yeah i left with like a suitcase full of sketchbook and a baby um and i came to new york 15 years before that with just a suitcase full of sketchbook and some clothes i was like i win you know like i i I won at new york but that was my last real day and you told me i was in your bucket list which really you were on my bucket list uh you were on my bucket list because because I, and I was actually having so well, A, because I really liked your podcast, but B, because I was having so much New York FOMO. I was just wandering around and I think I didn't realize that like I would actually be back every month and like I'm not in Boston's not actually all that far away. But I was like, this might be the last time I walk down the street and I'm going to miss this and I'm going to miss that and I'm going to like not meet all of these cool people. And so you were part of my bucket list because I just started being like, who are all of the people that I will never get the chance to meet again if I move out of here? Uh, and then I realized that I'd actually already met you and that, and that I had your email and that I could just write you and you said, yes. Sir. And here we are today. Yeah, and then I was like, hey, do you want to go on our podcast, despite the fact that you have a professional podcast that gets produced by HBS? Um, I love podcasts. I just want to thank you for listening, everybody, because podcasts are the best medium. The the media, when you have articles about you, you don't control anything. The journalist frames it in their own lens, and you don't know. With a podcast, the long form allows you to get into stuff, and like it's riskier too because you might say something stupid. Yeah, um, totally. So, but so by the way, how would people find Patrick McGinnis? Where are you in real life on the internet, etc.? How can they stalk you outside your house? You want to find me in New York? I'm very easy to find because I actually like live and work within two blocks of each other, which is kind of fun. <laughs> I work on Little West Twelfth, and I live on. West 12th? On Big West 12th? Yeah, which is... Which is uh, um, okay, you, you don't have to give us your address, but Facebook, Instagram, yeah, of website... Course. What, I will yeah. tell you the fun thing about, about the West 12th thing is many years ago when I first came out of business school and came back to New York, I met this guy called John Rigos, who's an interesting guy, really nice guy. He owns all the five guys in New York City. He's like oh. the franchisee. He has this thing called Melt Shop. Like, good dude. He had gone to business school, came out, and like, I don't know what he did, but he ended up working for himself. And he worked at... Little West 12th Street. And I remember he gave me his business card. It was a friend of a friend. Um, and I was like, and he was wearing jeans. And I was like, this, you know, do you work jeans to the office? This is before New York became techie techie. He's like, yeah. And I was like, man, my dream is to work on Little West 12th Street and wear jeans to the office every day. <laughs> and all these years later, that's precisely what I do. Um, which is super crazy. Um, but... Assuming you, that you you lived it and believed it, or believed lived, it and lived exactly, it. Exactly, you, you, you are Full living. Circle. You are living your dream. It's yeah. crazy. It's great, but you know, it's like every day is you know, it's not not easy. But uh, um, if you want to find me, here's what you can do. First, I encourage you to check out FOMO Sapiens. F O M O S A P I E N S. Um, you can find it on any of the podcasting apps. And it's awesome. Like it's yeah. Um, like it's really, really entertaining and really, really informative. And you're a really great host who doesn't go on nearly as many many yeah, tangents I've as me, Marshall. I've binge listened to it. Uh, it's nice of you. Thank it's you. Really great. Uh, it's, no, no, it's it's, it's not. Hard. It's, it's not to be nice to you. It's actually because it's really good. Well, <laughs> it's le- I'm learning and I'm very open to you know improvement. And so I recognize that I'm no I'm not yet Terry Gross. Interviewing is really hard. 
super hard and production's really hard and making it sound great's really hard but I have a beautiful theme song written by my brother and vocalized by me oh, did he? nice Momo that's me <laughs> <laughs> so the podcast is great uh, place to start checking me out you can also find me uh, best place to probably go is my website because there I have links to everything it's uh, patrickmcginnis.com p-a-t-r-i-c-k m-c-g i-n-n-i-s.com and then my uh my instagram is patrick j mcginnis um and you know i think those are the the principal Um, ones and you guys should all read patrick's two books oh yes already out and the one that's coming out is it may May 2020 may 2020 and the and and that'll be um called fear of missing out practical decision making in a world of overwhelming choice the first one which i think is a, you know my brother the musician read it and he said it changed his thinking so if you're mm. looking for some thinking about you can you know check it out it's called the 10 percent entrepreneur and you can get it on um obviously kindle an audiobook and physically as well and um and if you go to my website, I also have a free workbook. I mean, all these resources for you. And you can even reach out to me if you have questions. And I promise I won't bench you as long as, but I, but, but I will. If you'll only bench you for like three months and not five. But I, well, I do tell people when they have questions, I say, you know, I'm happy to answer your questions. Let's do it over email or whatever. Um, but um, always interested in hearing what people have to say. So reach out. It's great. Thank you so much for coming on, Patrick. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah, great information. This is awesome. You're one business guy, and I feel like all of the artists listening could actually probably use a lot of this. Hopefully, yeah. I think the business world is very different than the art world, but we all need each other. Yeah, because we need yeah. art to keep us from going crazy and make our lives richer. And the art people need the business people to help them to make their careers sustainable. So hopefully we can all help each other out. Well, that's an, I, I, we're, we're wrapping up, but I do have a question. Tell me. Uh, so I've been reading. Now I'm going to get more wine because I'm like, well, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I've been reading some of like this, this Schopenhauer book about his opinions on how art functions to everyday people. And yeah, he hasn't. Marshall, it's just like a little bit of light reading before bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he talks about how like, well, Schopenhauer's dark, but it's like about how it interrupts your day art. And so you're basically, he talks about the cycle of wanting that you're constantly on desire, desire, desire. And then art comes in and you just contemplate for a few minutes till you remember you're hungry and or start desiring food again. Mm. What do you, what purpose does art serve in your life as? Oh, such a good question. Oh, you're, you're a master. Um, okay, so I, I'll tell you two things on that one. I love that question. Thank you for asking it. And I'm going to talk about art, like like paintings and sculptures and things mm-hmm. today, because music is a big part of what I do in my life. Um, like, I have a soundtrack to everything I do. I really think about these. I have playlists for everything. Oh, um, me too, actually. Yeah, I love, I mean, I'm like, forget Spotify. Like, I make my own playlist. But <laughs> let me talk about, about the sort of the, representational art or whatever. I don't even know what you call this stuff, like art, paintings and sculpture and other things. Um, in my home, it's important to me. So I actually have collected a bit. Mm. I have bought four pieces over the years. It's all South Asian art. I bought a piece by a guy called Gulji, who was kind of the most famous Pakistani artist. He does these beautiful, I'll show you guys after. He was murdered. It was awful. He was like 80 years old and murdered. And I bought this piece. Yes. 
because I saw it in somebody's home. Every upper middle class Pakistani has one of these, and I thought hmm. they're beautiful. So I purchased that, and I just have it in my home. And apparently, unfortunately, he's been now shown. He's collected by MoMA. He's been shown hmm. at um gallery here, and the value has gone crazy. But like, I don't care about that. I just love the piece. It, I feel the piece of my home. Like it's just there for me. Hmm. I have a Seher Shah, which is she's she's now in MoMA. I bought that through a friend of mine who was an art dealer and I bought it for nothing at Freeze. Like I got the cheapest piece ever sold at Freeze. Um, and I love that. I have a Banksy. I don't know if it counts, but basically Banksy has this hotel in the West Bank and they have a gift shop and they sell these numbered pieces he does hmm. and they're $200, um, but they won't sell them to you unless you're staying at the hotel. Hmm. And I wasn't, but I was, I just was nice to them. I was like, that piece <laughs> is great. What is it? I want it. And they were like, you can't have it. And I was like, oh, and they said, you know what, we'll make a we'll make an exception to your rule. Oh, that's great. So I have those in my home and I feel like very and I have this beautiful miniature that I it's Bangladeshi. So those are in my house. I love them. I feel like they're my just they, they make my space a good place to be in. Hmm. So that's the A. The B is art and travel. So I my favorite thing to do when I travel is go to museums. I barely go to museums in New York. I, I live two blocks in the Whitney. I like I'm a member, of course. Um, but Yeah, but the Whitney's really unappealing the, the Whitney uh, is, is guy I, I would make some changes when i go to paris like my first stop is at pompidou like pompidou is my favorite yeah, probably my favorite one. museum in the world mm -hmm. i love you know i love it like i i just so for me and now with instagram too i love to like make stories and stuff it's probably cheesy but when i travel if i always go to art museums and i spend time in them and i feel like i get to see things that i wouldn't see otherwise and so i think that's the third and i guess the third one is knowing artists because mm. artists think differently than I do, and they teach me. That's and a part of it, right? For totally. a yeah, collector to. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like a fancy. I'm. The, I wish I had like the trust fund to be able to collect a lot of stuff. But my view is like buy things. You know, I'm, this is obvious, but like just buy things that you like, have them forever, be friends with artists. Hopefully, you know. It all goes well, and then, and then when the artist dies, your your piece becomes really valuable. So it is shocking. I mean, it, the value of the piece apparently went up by like you know thirty times or something crazy like that. I have fifteen thirty wow. times, and I mean, I I'm sorry that he died. That sucks, but but I love the piece. I would not sell it. So. There was that. I think it was Wall Street Journal a few years back article that was the most expensive, the the best investment you could have done in the last hundred years. I think was buy a Mark Rothko painting from his studio. Wow. More than real estate, any of that stuff, it's appreciated more than any other asset on the planet. So my best friend from college and in the world, like he's my closest friend, his grandparents collected, like they had Yves Klein, they had mm. Leger, they had Picassos, they had um, Man Ray's. They were friends of Man Ray. They, they, I mean, they would go, they, they actually have a museum at, at uh, one of the schools on Long Island. It's called like... Um, What's that school in Long Island? It's um, uh, Stony Brook. No, it's the one that it's like Marist. It's not Marist. It's a name like that, though. Mm -hmm, mm. It's got a law school. It's like um, anyway, there's a school on Long Island. They actually have a uh, they create an avant garde collection there and give it to them. And like he grew up around the art and has also taught me a lot about art. And it's like they, you know, he's a savvy man financially. I mean, he's passed away now, but they also just like, they were, they knew the artists and they collected people who they liked. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. So I have a student whose dad did that and his catalog is so insane. Cause he was buying 
a lot of abstract expressionist in the 50s mm. and just like everybody just like amassed an enormous fortune from just hanging out at bars and meeting artists and just like buying their stuff off of their studios yeah. we should rap and say talk off mic yeah, oh, yeah 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 but uh, thanks for coming patrick, yeah, patrick this thank was you excellent. thank you so my much pleasure. i thank you. uh maybe my real bucket list for new york was actually luring you onto this podcast because i knew it'd be a really good conversation i knew it was gonna be fun but it was even more fun because like seeing Tony again and meeting you Marshall and Dina you're always amazing so um, I hope I hope people will get something out of this I uh, you know I hope it's useful hey thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind podcast hotline now So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, and if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We really love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.